Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Meru Media Podcast. <clears throat> I'm your host today, Mukunda Raghavan, um, and I'm joined by the Brown Pundit Browncast. We are doing a simulcast. Um, and from the Brown Pundits, we have Razib Khan and Omar Ali. Um, we're going to explain a little bit more about our backgrounds when we get into the actual podcast. But it, this conversation, I think, was one of the most fun interesting and diverse percent diverse perspectival conversations I've had in a very long time. We each come from very different backgrounds and very different political positions um, and even positions on uh, things in history and, and such. But we have such a fun, interesting time talking about um, first um, alcohol and uh, in India, both modern and ancient, uh, ideas of the Aryan invasion theory, Dravidianism, genetics, the concept of what it means to be Bangladeshi and Pakistani in relationship to the larger subcontinental identity or even Hinduism. Although we don't speak that much in depth about Hinduism, we cover a lot of areas that touch upon culture and history and identity and society. So join us on this. It's actually a really fun podcast, really interesting. And I think you'll enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it. So without further ado, um, welcome to the simulcast. The Brown Pundits Browncast. Hey, everybody. Um, we're doing something a little different, uh, a simul podcast, I guess, um, with a friend of ours um, who will introduce himself. And so um, just for everyone who's not listening on Brown Pundits, uh, this is Razib Khan. I am a geneticist and a all-around nerd. Um, I run the Brown Pundits blog, the Browncast, Brown Pundits podcast. Um, I run a couple of other blogs. Um, I do science during the day, and I have a variety of interests, and um, that's why I'm on this podcast. So um, off to you, Omar. Yes, hi, this is Omar. Uh, I am actually a physician in the US, uh, originally from Pakistan. Uh, and I have an interest in history and Islam and Islamic and Indian history uh, and just whatever comes up. And uh, we'll see uh, where this discussion with Mukunda leads. Hey guys, this is uh, Mukunda. Um, and I host the Meru Media podcast along with my colleague, Rachit, who actually isn't able to join us today. Um, my background is I am a uh, a former recovering attorney, um, much like an alcoholic, it, it takes a while to get over that. Um, and I actually am in the tech and uh, um, uh, I guess, yeah, tech industry. I, I actually just took on a recent role as a um, head of uh, sales and and a and couple other things for a startup. Um, and my interests actually run a gamut. I I, I do know, I, I study Sanskrit from a young age and um, well, I did my law degree. I also did my philosophy master's at Boston University, but uh, I didn't finish it because, to be honest, I got a little bit too drunk and didn't uh, take the exams. So um, I cover a whole host of topics on my podcast, including mythology, Hin Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, and we kind of just like free talk about a lot of issues in the in the day, both in the Desi community and, and uh, in India, abroad. What? Well, well, so before we got on, um, you did mention you were drinking a beer. Um, like, what kind yeah. of beer is that? Just, just out of um, curiosity. Yeah, it's a blood orange wit from uh, Refugee Brewing. Um, it's a pretty good, pretty good beer. And wh where is Refugee Brewing? I think they're based out of Texas. Uh, All right. From my understanding, right. I, I I actually don't know. All right, I'm I'm in Texas right now, actually. So 
Oh, for work? Yeah, yeah. I, I live in Austin. So we can we can start with an alcohol question. I have always had this thought. It seems like Hinduism is not very alcohol friendly. A uh, lot of Hindus drink. It's obviously not prohibited in Hinduism like it is in Islam. Uh, but on the other hand, Islamic culture is sort of saturated with alcohol imagery and alcohol poetry and people getting together and drinking. Uh, but when you look at Indian history, it doesn't seem to be the case. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of drinking going on. Well, I mean, I, well, I think that's uh, probably a medieval and probably early uh, like uh, CE kind of development, because if you actually look at the text itself, right, if you go back to like the Ramayana, Mahabharata, and even a lot of the Puranas, you get quite a bit of drinking references. Like one of the biggest episodes in the Mahabharata is in the in, in this chapter near the end called uh, uh, Paravan, which is basically when Krishna and Balarama and all of them kind of pass away, they actually all die by getting super drunk and killing each other. <laughs> right, right. Mm. The Yadavs. But again, the Yadavs sort of getting drunk and killing each other is also a sort of a bad mark on them, right? It's not something that people... It doesn't seem like Hindu society had uh, a place for drinking virtuously. Is that right or wrong? I see. Here's the thing: is I, I think we we kind of look things in the past with some sort of rose tinted glasses about our current ideas, especially within India and Hinduism on the whole. Uh, today, we do look upon alcohol drinking badly, right? Um, but if you think about it, like certain groups, like for example, within Tantra, like, okay, uh, yeah, so I mean, especially in like the Tantra culture, um, in the religion, there is use of sex and alcohol, but it's actually very ritualized in, in a way to um, connect with the divine, but from an opposite direction of what normally people would think is considered sacred, right? It, it Because Hinduism does cover a gamut of various different ideas, sex, and communities, uh, it, it's difficult to really say definitively, de definitively what Hinduism says about anything. Um, yeah, within the spiritual text, there is a sort of idea that um, alcohol is bad. And I think there's something to that insofar as when it gets abused and it becomes kind of like a sense of um, dependency and also kind of takes you away from a, a ritualized, rigorous life. And that's really kind of what I guess the formal Hindu texts tend to lead you towards is a very focused, determined, and pointed life. And I think that it kind of takes away from, with alcohol, drugs, or any other sort of uh, um, thing that people do enjoy in a surreptitious manner, I think it takes away from the larger goals that the Hindu thought tends to focus on. Right, and I meant not just in uh, the sense that sort of a theological ban or not banned, but just in society itself, it's, it seems to be my impression that if you go to a, what we would consider a typical Hindu society, right, a, a, a community that lives where most of the people are Hindu and identify as Hindu, uh, there isn't like bars and drinking going on. Oh, no, no. I mean, back in the day, like if you look at uh, Chanakya's uh, Arthashastra and other texts, um, they would talk about, for example, like drinking houses were to be regulated by the government um, for the purposes of uh, controlling, like like drinking houses, uh, brothels, all, all these things that we would consider, quote unquote, negative were supposed to be controlled by the government because they understood that fundamentally like sex, drugs, drinking, alcohol, these are fundamental parts of human nature, but they were seen as like negative in some sense. And the, the, the government used it as ways to 
not only spy upon people, but also to uh, control the exposure of, of when and how people can drink. Okay, I'll have, we just went on a digression with drinking, so I think we'll come back to the main topic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No. Well, I, I, go ahead. Well, one, one thing that I that I that I wonder about is you're talking about um all this like ancient stuff, but you know what is Indian and Hindu has evolved a lot. So yeah. I mean, when I when you read something like the Mahabharata, there are a lot of those motifs and forms seem pretty ancient and almost more Central Asian. Um, I mean, some of the mythologies, I mean, like the twins, the heavenly twins, like certain things, like they're found in all of the Indo-European mythologies, yeah. right? And so, um. You know, the culture of like, you know, guys getting drunk, eating beef, riding around on chariots, that's really anachronistic for the last several thousand years. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. I think like today, modern Hindu culture has become very puritanical in some sense, um, because I think it's this reflexive reaction to the idea that they think they're, the culture is under assault and it's going to be lost. So they kind of like, well, anytime that occurs, right, people tend to become much more conservative and uh, protect what they think are their fundamental ideas. And especially, I think, nowadays in India, they they see it as sort of um, almost like a Western imposition of uh, of their values on on the East. And, and I don't know if that's entirely true. Like, I spend a lot of time on these uh, groups that I, I, I'm part of. And you see, especially amongst, I think, like um, the the higher educated and also the um, kind of semi-religious people that tend to be very conservative about, about these kind of things. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I, actually, uh, I was wondering, like, what is your background, Makunda? Like, I mean, like, what part of India is your family from and stuff like that? Because I just to situate. Yeah, sure. Um, so, like, my my dad is from Bangalore and my mom's from Chennai. Um, so growing up, I spoke both Tamil and Kannada. Uh, I can't really speak Kannada anymore, but I speak Tamil pretty fluently. And then I, I, later on, I learned Hindi and Sanskrit. And at one point, I knew ancient Greek, but not anymore. I, I really haven't practiced any of that. But um, yeah, so I mean, I, I spent a lot of my time in the summers. And uh, sp- I actually lived in India for a couple of years in my adult life uh, when I was part as part of work. And um, it's, it's a really it's a really interesting place because I like being an ABCD in some sense, you know, uh, I have way more. It's funny. I have way more knowledge of the culture, history and traditions than most Indians, even in India do. And maybe that's just uh, a point of the fact that being born and raised, I mean, being born in India and raised in the US, um, I kind of had to cling on to some sort of identity uh, that was very difficult to um I guess, place myself in the world I grew up in. I grew up in Southern California um, in like Orange County where it's predominantly Hispanic and white. And I went to public schools all my entire life. So everyone I knew was like either from a lower middle class or poor background. And, you know, it's funny because uh, uh, people talk about um, white supremacy, but I also remember quite a bit growing up, like other minorities make fun of me, right? Like Indiana Jones came out so everyone thought I ate monkey brains, but then there's also Gandhi or Gandhi and his vegetarianism. And people just make fun of me all the time. I used to get a lot of picked on a lot of times and get in a lot of fights. So that's kind of like my growing up background. Yeah. I mean, I, I have somewhat similar experiences, not, you know, like the, the details differ. Like, you know, growing up in, in the 80s and 90s, it was a different time. Um, you know, one thing that I like to point out to people is we talk a lot about white supremacy, especially on the political left today. But um, 
the 20th century was just white supremacy and people never talked about it. And now that I feel like it's not, frankly, as supreme to be white, people talk about it all the time. So it's just like one of those weird things. Yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, like, I'm guessing you, you were probably born in, like, around the same time I was. I was born in 79, and all the 80s and 90s were spent in the U.S. And it, it was, it, it's so weird to me because I didn't have a sense of race, I think, really, until probably middle school, right? And it, before that, I, I didn't know that I was, I didn't feel all that different from everyone else around me. And then, and then it's weird because I, most of my white friends or the white world I got into high school and then and then over over time I dealt with a lot of white supremacy issues in this country mostly in Boston which is really weird but um it was it's kind of in the it's coming back to the forefront to have these discussions again right I, I in the 80s and 90s I don't recall anyone talking about white supremacy or any of that and now it's now it's like on everyone's lips right it's like the go-to thing like sadly there was just a shooter what was it in El Paso today um, uh, and, there was there's somebody in Dayton today. El Paso oh, was yesterday. Yesterday, yeah, twenty people died, and the yeah. guy yesterday had like a manifesto about some, some sort of white supremacy. But we never really saw that growing up. I mean, did do you recall this, Razid? No, I mean, I, I think a lot of this is like you can interpret it in a Spanglerian sense, where when you have a declining or dying civilization, um, there's kind of like atavistic reactions that occur. You know, yeah. uh, because it's it's kind of like death throes. I mean, I, I, I'm making it sound a lot grander than it is, but um, you know, uh, we live in a de facto multicultural world in a lot of ways right now, and that's making a lot of people uncomfortable. And so you have this a lot of this talk and these like acting out behaviors. Um, you know, if people were more comfortable in their skin, more confident about their status, I don't think this would happen. And I think this is unfortunately just a side effect of change. Change scares people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think one of the things that, that I, and, and this is a legit fear. I think like many Americans are, or white Americans are feeling that their, their country or their idea of their country is drastically changing, especially demographics, right? You know, I think uh, someone you had on your podcast, I had my podcast, uh, Kushal Mera, he, he brought up a fact, and I think he's right in some sense, demographics is king, right, in, in, at the end of the day. And in America, we're seeing our, a true shift in demographic, demographics, especially in terms of uh, what we, I mean, what we currently call race. And that's really changing the way I think people respond to to the world around them. Yeah, but yeah, also... I, I mean... So yeah, I was just going to say that even the change itself is partly how just how it's framed, right? The demographics are changing, but like there's the large Hispanic American population, they don't necessarily identify in their own mind as non-white. A lot of them identify as white actually and are racially whatever 70% Hispanic or from Spain, I mean not from Latin America. Uh but they're uh but the way these things are interpreted and how it depends on the sort of dominant academic fashion also, I don't know how much the objective changes have had an impact and how much is just how the narrative has changed. Yeah, and I think you're right. Because, it, 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 I mean, growing up, I had a lot of Hispanic friends and they would, you're totally correct, they would somehow connect more to the Hispanic Spanish side like long time back, even though the majority of them I think were probably there's only a small, small amount of Spanish blood of them with a lot more of the native, you know, uh, indigenous people of the areas blood in them. And it's, it's just, 
and this is something I think still happens in it's it's happening now more so in India, I think, especially like these demarcations between Muslims and Hindus and uh, Christians are almost making it out to be like it's a a racial thing, right? I, I mean, I, I feel like if in some sense in India, it, it does feel like they are there's this demarcation happening across the board, whether you are Hindu or Muslim or Christian or whatever else, you start seeing your identity purely in terms of religion, almost in the same sense that in America, how they see it as race. Okay. okay. So Mukund, I was going to, uh, the discussion of sort of American uh, narratives and uh, race and so on is interesting and always uh, is never ending. But coming back to Hinduism and uh, Indians and Pakistanis yeah. and all that, uh, you're from the South. So what is your view of how that is playing out right now? Uh, this whole business of the Dravidian movement in the South, and there is an element in it, not entirely, but there is an element in it which is sort of anti-Hindu, right? Consciously anti-Hindu. Uh, how do you think that will play out and where is it right now? I mean, it's it's actually really, I mean, this is something I think is really fascinating and it's actually somewhat scary to me, right? Um, if you look at the history, the idea of like Dravidian as a, a, a different group of people, it's 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 probably a hundred and like hundred and thirty, hundred and forty years old, right? It, it started around the time in like eighteen eighties, something like that, with this guy named Robert Codwell. He's he's the first one that I'm sure you heard of him. He, he's the first one that kind of developed this idea of Dravidian race, um, and and then later on during the time of, I guess, the Indian independence. Um, and towards the end of it, you had people like, you know, um, E.V. Ramaswamy and then like uh, Pediyar in the South who ended up creating like um, the the Dravida, the DMK, uh, which is the Dravida Munit, uh, I forget how to say it, the Karangir or something like that. It is, uh, you know, the, the, the branch of government or the political party that is dominant in only in Tamil Nadu, right? It's not dominant anywhere else. The, for example, like Dravidian is a language group, right? It, it, of, of which Telugu, Tamil, uh, Kannada, and Malayalam fall into. And there's a small group, I think, in uh, Pakistan. I think they're... Uh, Baroi is, uh, yeah, the Baroi yeah. language, yeah. Yeah, so they're all like connect. Those are Dravidian languages. But even if you go back to the oldest Dravidian text or Dravidian language text, let's just say it that way, is like something like uh, Agam and Puram, um, probably dated somewhere around the fourth, the fourth or fifth century BCE onwards. It was called the Sangam era. Um, and in that time period, there was also this guy named Tolgapiyam who wrote this, the, this text called Tolgapiyam, uh, which is uh, basically modeled almost exactly like Panini does on his Ashtadadiyai, uh, which is the Sanskrit text. And in the only, in the earlier text, you don't see a, a, a differentiation of Dravidian versus quote unquote Arya, what you see is that the Dravidians or the, the people that spoke Tamil and the, the Cheras, the Cholas, the Pandyas, they all saw themselves as belonging to the Vedic fold. They saw themselves as being part of Arya. And parts of the Mahabharata, you have references to the Pandya kingdom, which they they called coming from the Dravida region, but they consider these people Arya. So the, the, the problem is in this modern time, we have this real real like schism that has no basis in fact or reality, which is being 
created within the community, especially only in Tamil Nadu, to be honest, where they have the sense that there is this, and there is some truth to some sort of hegemony of, of being imposed on them, like language, like like the, the, the trying to create a monoculture of sorts. Um, and I think that happened, especially during the time of the BJP and this l- larger idea of uh, not even, actually not even the BJP, but before the BJP, the creating this idea of like a single Indian identity. Right, and Hindi, think, Hindu, Hindustan. Yeah, and I think what happened is during that time period, just like Americans today are white Americans, let's not say Americans, and I apologize for saying Americans, I'm only referring to white Americans, uh, that tend to react to the multicultural nature of their world and what they think is declining. The same way, I think uh, the, a lot of Tamilians reacted or the, uh, in that sense of they saw themselves losing their culture of Tamilness for the imposition of, say, Hindi on them or Hind- uh, what they call, consider North Indian Hinduism. Right, right. Well, it's interesting. You know, I have we we've had arguments with uh, different uh, uh, people uh, from what is, I guess, more or less the Hindutva side in India, uh, who insist yeah. that there was no such thing as an Aryan migration to India. Uh, but the obverse side of that is that this whole Dravidian business is really a concoction that started in the 19th century. It's a very British idea. Uh, As far as I can tell, and I'm not claiming to be an expert, but as far as I can tell, uh, there doesn't seem to have been any sense in India prior to the 19th century of the people in the South being somehow a completely different people. They were Indian people. Uh, They identified as Indian people. Uh, They had the same sort of high language uh, of the priests in Sanskrit and so on. They had the same yeah. gods or variants of the same gods and so on. Uh, it seems like a very uh, made up kind of difference that the British sort of cultivated in the 19th century and that took off after that. Uh, but it's it's somewhat ironic and funny uh, that not only are the, the out of India theory people sort of, in my view at least, uh, completely nonsensical, uh, the opposite is also completely nonsensical. Yeah, you know, I I, I definitely don't, I, I know for sure there was a lot of migrations back and forth across these regions over time, right? It just, it's, it's that that's not something you can kind of um, fight against that idea. I, and whether or not like a group, a small group of, you know, the current theory of Aryan migration or invasion occurred, I don't think that's a possibility. Out of India, if you're saying like, for example, like central India, they came out of what we would call the modern India. I don't think that's maybe not the case either because I think back in the day, much of what we call India as a term or Aryavarta back then includes parts of Afghanistan and and as far as, you know, west as Afghanistan um, to as far as north as, you know, uh, Turkmenistan or, I mean, start not Turkmenistan, but Tajikistan. And then as far east as like Bengal and those regions and south, it went probably as far as down to Tamil Nadu, you know, it was a very large area covered whether or not people came from what region. I don't know. And I, I think like, I mean, Razib maybe can talk about this later about the Gen X of it, but I, I'm sure I, I've listened to a few of your podcasts. You yeah, Razib can talk about it in much more uh, sort of technical detail. Uh, yeah. I personally think that the evidence is pretty good that there was a migration of Indo-European people into India, uh, the same people whose branch migrated into Iran and became sort of the dominant ethnic group there. Uh, They became the dominant ethnic group in North India and spread all the way across India. I mean, you can find 
what we would describe as an Indo-European genetic component all the way down to the very southern tip of India. Everyone has it. Uh, they have less of it as you go south, but everyone has it. Well, I mean, uh, and my only my only point I would differentiate you is I think you're talking about the A1, um, R1N1, right? Uh, that, oh, that's one of them. It's not just that, though. I mean, that's just the mitochondrial, uh, yeah. the uh, you know, the male uh, genetic component. Yeah. But you can find this in in whole genome sequencing as well. Now that it's been done, people have looked at the entire genetic component of Indians, and you find the same thing. Really, uh, you find that the population of India today is made up of layers of population. Right? It's made up sure. of people who came originally from Africa, probably 40, 50,000 years ago. Sure. Uh, there was another major input from what is now West Asia, uh, who are what we would call Iranian farmers uh, who moved into India and yep. uh, who are a large component of actually the Indian genetic sort of heritage and who were probably the dominant people in the Indus Valley civilization. And then there's the Indo-European, the sort of the last arrivals from outside uh, in terms of population contribution at least, uh, who uh, again came from Central Asia, came from uh, the Caucasus region and whatever between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Uh, but they, I think I don't have any doubt, uh, at least at this time from the current evidence that that seems to be the case. I just think it's unfortunate actually from a Hindu nationalist point of view that some of them have latched on to this as a major issue for them. Uh, it's not worth fighting over. Uh, it's like, I don't know if you've seen that guy. Uh, there's a blog on the internet called Manastaramgini. I don't think I have. Ah, you would find it interesting. Anyway, he's a, a, a biologist. And uh, from what I can tell, he's very careful about keeping his anonymity. Uh, yeah. But what you can tell from his blog, I mean, he's not just an uh, average physician or biologist like I am. He's a very accomplished biologist and with a real sort of solid credentials and uh, has several posts about this topic and how it's sort of silly for the Hindu nationalists to get hung up on this. Uh, it should, they should really, until 50 years ago, they proudly owned the fact that they came from the Northwest or wherever. Uh, somehow this changed, and I don't know why exactly they've become so enamored of this out-of-India business. Uh, but anyway, we'll move on to something else. Well, uh, I, I, address that yes. real quick. I mean, I, I think they're... Like I'm not, I don't have a position on this, right? Like in the sense of I don't, I don't claim that I am an out of India theorist or uh, in Aryan migration. My my issue is in the logic of I think there's a fundamental flaw of considering a genome connected to a particular language group, right? I think there's there's a lot that we don't understand, especially about the time periods we're talking about, right? Uh, like if you're talking about that's 5, true. Years ago, that I would agree with that. I, I think I we're, I, we're just making yeah. a lot of causal arguments based yeah. upon. No, no, but the thing is, that's my point. That you have to differentiate between rejecting what are very sort of stylized, oversimplified, and and in many cases completely wrong ideas about an an Aryan invasion of India that people. Uh, that was promoted as almost like uh, the European settling of the Americas, like the, yeah. the Dravidians are like the Red Indians of the of the Indian subcontinent. They are the oppressed uh, native people who were conquered and somehow uh, sort of enslaved by this invading army from abroad who have now taken sure. over the culture. I think that's really not 
doesn't seem to fit the historical picture at all, uh, or or at least it doesn't fit in enough to be useful. Uh, I think that there is a uh, there is a vision of Indian history uh, where you don't have to be actually very sensitive about it. Every country is consisting of people who moved in in layers. Uh, people, we are all African Americans, right? We all uh, came originally, in some sense, from Africa. Uh, but that doesn't—that's not the end of the story. Obviously, people had uh, settlements and cultures that developed later, and then there were other cultures and groups that moved in, and we take them seriously. Uh, but let's say, imagine that the Indian nationalists sort of accept this uh, whole. Aryan migration thing. Nothing much would change yeah. about India. India is what India is. Uh, it's made up of people who moved here and they became Indian. All right. The, the Aryans are as much Indian as Dravidians or anyone else. Uh, the, the Indian civilization that exists today or that even existed, let's say, a thousand years ago. Forget about sure. colonization by the Turks and the English, uh, which are sort of in the historical period. And we know a lot about them and are very clear yeah. sort of examples of a colonization by an outside group. Uh, but even before that, the people who lived in India identified as Indians, they had sort of absorbed or become one culture. Uh, and you can see that happening to outside groups that moved in in smaller numbers, uh, that they tended to become Indianized, right? Uh, the, the, the Jats and Gujars, uh, the genetic evidence seems to be that they moved in the last 2000 years or so. Uh, sure. probably from this, uh, again, from Central Asia, from the Northwest. Uh, but there's no question about them being Indian. They adopted what was were Indian languages. They, they contributed to that culture in some small way, probably like everyone does, but they picked up more of it than they gave to it. Uh, they became Indian. And, uh, and in that way, there's no reason to sort of feel ashamed or uh, feel this whole conflict about where, whether Aryans came or did not come. Either way, it doesn't matter really. I think I think you're right from a practical perspective. What does it matter where you come from? Where, you know, uh, it, it just matters where you are, right? In, in in some sense, I think the I think the problem with India, well, not the problem. It, it's actually, I think this is the issue of because India is one of the remaining ancient civilizations still connected to its hoary past, right? You know, it, it still has. You know these very much a very similar, if not the same, religion that it practiced thousands of years ago. Traditions have kind of come down unbroken. There clearly is a sense that India doesn't view things, or Indians don't view things in the here and now. They see it in like the, what I would call like long time, right? The long now, and and this is whether it's good or bad. That's a a, a subsequent kind of discussion. But I I think when it comes to their identities. Because they've been, I, th I think, because of the fact that India has had all these recent inabilities to be its own civilization, even though the population itself has maintained it. Like they, I mean, it's been constant conflict. At least this is how they see it, right? Whether it's true or not, it's another story. Um, is they see it as like, first the, the Turks came in or the Turko Mongols came in, and then the, later on the Europeans came in. There has been no ability for them to truly express their their ancient civilizational identity and i think that becomes a problem today and that's why they're kind of going back to the past and saying it matters to them that they are the original people of the land otherwise they end up being just like anyone else that came in and that's i think 
what the crux of their like fear is that they're just I get another that. group that I, I can sort of see where they're coming from but I think it's unfortunate because you can't fight facts too much you know you can to some extent uh, but you can't fight them too much and this would get into the too much area uh, they really should give up on that uh, it's okay to be indian without having to be out of india for the last 50000 years or anything uh, but anyway let's move on from there india clearly yeah. has uh, this issue that it is a civilization that existed as a distinct civilization because other people recognized it as such right the persians oh, sure. the chinese when they write about india they don't say oh there's another chinese province across the himalayas they clearly think there's a different entirely different sort of civilization there uh, the same thing with the persians they think of the indian the people beyond the indus as being a distinct place uh, and that has its own ethos and its own uh, kind of uh, culture and civilization uh, but this culture and civilization was conquered from the northwest i don't think you need to give too much attention to the arab conquest of sindh which was a relatively minor affair but the conquest from the yeah. northwest uh, by the turkic uh, tribes right by the turco mongols and whatever the mongols came later but the turks uh, really yeah. changed the history of india and that change has is sort of rattling down through uh, the culture even today uh, but sure one reaction or one way of looking at it has been what is the for lack of a better word the secular indian kind of model for it that until the moguls everyone is indian they became indian because they adopted india as their homeland uh, the only foreign yeah. conquest is the british and about the sure. british we are very clear they're they're colonizers we hate them for having conquered us we hate them for taking away quote unquote our freedom but we don't hate the moguls for taking away our freedom because they are our people in some way right that's the yeah. that's the secular indian version of history uh, which again is the problem with that is the same with the out of india business that you can stretch facts uh, to some extent and it's always okay to do that but you can't stretch them too much and this is stretching it too much. Uh, the Mughals, uh, they identified as the, the family of Taimur. They did not identify yeah, as yeah. an Indian dynasty. Uh, even when they saw India as their homeland, they settled in here. They had no intention of going anywhere else. They lost their original homeland. Uh, they were conscious of the fact that they are an outside group that has taken over India. Uh, they were not oh, Indians in the same way that the, the Rajput clans were Indian. Yeah, no, I, and I, I think you're right there. I, I think one of the big one, one of the big things is, you know, history, and, and this is a larger, I think, a meta idea. History is, it really is a set of facts, and we somehow we tend to build narratives around right. it, right? Like, there's no way for us to truly know what happened in any truly objective way. We have a narrative about what happened, right? This is exactly, I think, what like you know, Foucault, Dirigio, all these guys were talking about is a sense of narratives and they broke down the idea of narratives. And while it's important, and I think for human beings, it's fundamentally important for us to have a narrative because we have, that's how we view our lives, right? It, it, I think it's just encoded in our brains that we have to have the sense of a narrative about who we are, where we are and our place in the world. And I think in the same sense, like civilizations have to have that. And in this sense, we have to create this narrative, especially in modern secular India, right? That we can't talk about the last thousand years as some sort of subjugation, at least at least in the sense of the how Congress and, and, and they all did it, um, because it would kind of 
de deconstruct the integrity of the current status of India, right? Because you you can't you can't do away with the fact that there are two hundred and two hundred plus million Muslims in the country. There are a bunch of Christians. In the country. Right, four hundred million if you count Bangladesh yeah, and yeah, Pakistan. Absolutely. Right? So you have this massive group of people that that were totally influenced by an outsider. And and this is one of the things I think like many people talk about is that the for most like Hindus, Jains, and even some Buddhists, right? The homeland of their founders and the most sacred spots are found within the 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 confines of India or the greater India, as we can call it, like including Pakistan, Bangladesh, and even parts of like Afghanistan. But for most is Muslims in the country, like their the, their greatest place is you know few thousand miles away in Mecca, Medina, in Jerusalem, which have fundamentally different cultures and worldviews than these other native faiths or native like traditions. So it's difficult in the modern sense to to have that conversation because then you all you suddenly take all these 400 million people. But on the other hand, I think people and, you know, again, you can see where people are coming from and uh, you understand all of this is going to happen. This is human beings and how they yeah. work. Uh, but the fact remains that it is, in fact, possible to have, for example, Christians. Yeah. If you if you were to sort of pin them down and force them to say something like this, what is the most sacred city in the world where their faith considers central it has to be jerusalem right it has to be bethlehem or nazareth or whatever uh, it is somewhere in the middle east right like for example catholics they find the vatican or uh, rome to be like the central place for them to go they go to right. the vatican way more than they'll go to jerusalem. but i was going to go one step further and say okay they if you pin them down they may say that but actually it doesn't mean that they have some sort of extra territorial loyalty to that place yeah uh, right. there are christians in uh, let's say Thailand, who are completely Thai, who identify as Thai, who who would gladly fight for Thailand, uh, who want Thailand to be great and whatever. The fact that they are Christian and they have a holy place in Jerusalem is really pretty much irrelevant to them. Yeah, but I think I think that's right for many Christians globally. In America, the situation is a little different, right? Like the evangelicals have this sense of they're always trying to fight for Jerusalem because I think part uh, part and parcel of this is they want they think the end of times is here and uh, right they are immanentizing the eschaton and whatever exactly but, uh, but even that's a fringe phenomenon well, right it's I think not. That... and I th I think there's a good bit of evidence like you see I I don't know if you've had the opportunity to look at the numbers and actually there's a bunch of documentaries on this how much uh, evangelical organizations uh, contribute to is foundations to keep Israel Israel in terms of Jewish population they do all of this like a lot of them are anti-Palestinian yeah, they do I know they do and it's a it's a big deal Israel obviously benefits from this and I'm sure the Israelis are happy enough to take that help yeah uh, and not to make it too seriously that these people want actually want all of us to die in the end times or something uh, but uh, but the fact is that even with this the these evangelicals don't really you would not be accurate in saying that they have extraterritorial loyalty to Jerusalem no. right they are Americans mm -hmm. yeah uh, they're they're going to be actually they think of themselves as more American than anyone else right mm -hmm. uh, but the, the obviously the thing I'm coming to is that if there are Muslims in India yeah uh, 
the fact that they have sacred places in Saudi Arabia doesn't necessarily mean that their loyalty is not to India. Oh, I agree right? with you. I totally agree with you. I, I think there's a sense that people think that that because that you are Muslim, that you are inherently anti-India, I think is a problem because, you know, there's out of 200 million Muslims that are just like, just say that the Republic of India, right? There's, I, I, there's probably a very, very tiny, infinitesimally tiny uh, group that is very anti-India, right? They're very like pro-Pakistan or whatever it is, right? You know, like you could say the Diobandi school, all these people, they're very small. The vast majority of Indian Muslims are just as patriotic, just as connected to their country as anybody else, any Hindu can be, right? It's just, it's just because this is, it's just their tradition, their history, everything, these individuals, right? It's about individuals. They're connected to the land. Like they're, even if like, for example, they were converted, I think the I think the studies or or the the history has shown that it's not just one or two individuals get converted. A community gets converted, right? And that community is still touched to the land. It's not like suddenly they like like they're they're depossessed of their traditions. I think in some cases it's happening now with with Assam in terms of like the the evangelicals and things like that. But I think the the the, the Islamic influence within India has been much more about religion versus cultural identity. And I think that's a difference. Also, there is a, the thing is the truth is probably not according to any particular sort of groups model. Uh, The truth is somewhere in between and very, and in many cases very far from where your model is sort of projecting it. Uh, The, if you were to say that Indian Muslims are completely Indian, they identify as Indian, uh, they are loyal Indians, they, they should not be treated as outsiders, uh, you would be right about a lot of them, but obviously not about 100% of them. Sure. And sure. clearly there was a very prominent Indian Muslim elite that did not identify Indi- with India enough to want to stay in India. Uh, who wanted to create a separate country in 1945, whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're 100% right. And so, uh, and if you go to Pakistan, which is really just Western India, uh, and you ask people on the street, uh, you may run into me, uh, one in a million chance, but otherwise you would run into people who are going to say they are not Indian, right? So uh, here's, my, here's my question to you. I mean, you're yeah. Pakistani. So... I mean, obviously, you're a spokesman for every single Pakistani, right? <laughs> but my question is, look, do you think this anti-Indianness was something that was from the inception, before the inception of Pakistan? Or was this more of a concern after? Because I, I don't know. And this is where I, I find difficulty. I, like for me, I, like people like Jinnah and people like, like that, and even early Pakistan, I don't think they had a sense of a distinct identity culturally different from India. They had a I religious think, identity. I think what you had, you you, my impression would be that, first of all, there is a difference between what was the Indian Muslim elite and what is actually the great majority of Indian Muslims. Okay. The Indian Muslim elite, yeah. when we are talking yeah. about these people, about people like the Raja of Mahmudabad or Liaquat Ali Khan, Nawab Zada Liaquat Ali Khan, these are people who identified 
as the as the kind of descendants of the ruling elite of North India, uh, okay. and who were very proud of identifying as Mughal, as Persian, as people who came from you know Hamdani and Khatani and this and that, whatever. There's always this proud link to what is an actually place outside of India, right? right. And uh, and they identified culturally with that Islamicate world. They also, for the most part, identified as Indians. By the time okay. the British rule had fully established them itself, most of them did identify as Indians, right? Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan, sort of the father of the two nation theory, uh, would identify as Indian. But in his view, his views about Indians were quite racist. His views about Indians were that there's this inferior black, lower group of masses who are not really the same quality as we are. And we are the ruling elite of India. And right. he would be, and we should be the ruling elite of India, right? He had a very clear sort of view about what the the elite, uh, the quality of that elite and the separate nature of that elite. And uh, and that identified with Islam and with Islamic culture also. Uh, and, but also count, counted himself as Muslim, so those were, as Indian. So those were not complete contradiction in his mind. But in his view, India was some place that uh, these people are supposed to rule over. And if they can't rule over India, then they're better off ruling somewhere else. Uh, but they, shall, they cannot be subordinate people in India. I think but there was I mean, an element of that. Uh, sure. But at the same time, for the great mass of the people, if you ask the peasants, the peasants who converted and the peasants who did not convert had very similar lives and had a very similar culture, right? I come yeah. from a village in Gujarat district in Pakistan, in Lahore, near Lahore. And in our village, I can tell you with 100% certainty, uh, the Sikhs and Hindus and Muslims who lived in that village, I'm not saying they were living in some sort of perfect harmony. They were not, they killed each other in 1947. Uh, but yeah. they were all the same people they had, they shared a very broad culture that they had, you know, they got married the same way, they ate the same food, they did whatever. And to them, my father always tells us these stories about the, the older people in the village when 1947 happened and partition happened. Uh, when the, my father first went back to the village, the first question those older people asked him was, so who is the king now? Right. It was some distant thing. There is some distant thing. It used to be the Mughal kings. It used to be Queen Victoria, whatever. And now someone else has become king. So who is the king now? Uh, to say that these people had a separatist idea of themselves as Muslims is not accurate. Uh, they had so, an idea of themselves as Muslims, but their life was much more local than that. So my question is, so do you think over time that that those people that were in 1945 that had this sense that you just talked about, do you think that now they have a distinct sense of being separate and different from the, I guess, the larger? Yeah, I, mean, I think they do yeah. by now. And I think that's a lot of it has to do with modern education and modern state building, right? Modern okay. states are, are, are a new phenomena in all across the third world. They're a new phenomena and, uh, and they have a great deal of power. Uh, they, they control mass education, they control the mass media. Uh, those things make a huge difference. And people have been brought up with this new identity. Uh, that doesn't mean everyone shares in it, right? Obviously, there are people, there are groups within Pakistan that don't fully buy into what you might call Pakistani ideology. 
for a variety of reasons. One is just peripheral nationalities who feel like they are going to get wiped out within Pakistan. So that would include... Yeah, like the Baluchis, right? Baluchis are the top of the list. Obviously, they they literally are going to get wiped out, I think. Uh, they're probably like the Native Americans now, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, but the Pakhtuns, to some extent, the Sindhis, to some extent, uh, they're not universally like that. Obviously, there are Pak nationalist Pakhtuns and there are Pak nationalist Sindhis even now. Uh, but there are mm-hmm. there is a significant element uh, a group of people who identify, who are proud of their their language, their distinct culture, and who feel it's going to get swamped and lost within what is an Urduized North Indian culture of Pakistan. Uh, so, so the, I my follow-up then to you would be, is there any remnant of any Hindu culture or traditions or even ideas that you think and obviously, I know you're no, not, not like a, outside outside of a very small fringe. No, uh, I think that for most people, the identification with Islam is uh, near total. I mean, that's pretty much all set, and uh, and that the identification with Pakistani nationalism in the middle class, and especially in Punjab, is pretty much 95% or whatever. I don't have any data, but that's my anecdotal impression. Uh, Someone like me who does not identify as Pak nationalist uh, would be a very rare phenomenon. But it's not unknown. At the same time, you would find people like me. Uh, So So if you don't identify as a uh, Pakistan nationalist, what do you identify as? I mean, you're you have a you're Pakistani in terms of where you where you, yeah. the land where you come from and right. the culture you come from. Right. But where where do you see yourself now? Like, what's your? Oh, I see myself as a Pakistani American mostly, uh, and okay. uh, and uh, that's uh, you know uh, my father is sort of a Punjabi nationalist, and so uh-huh. uh, uh, some of the some of the circle we hang out in are probably going to identify as Punjabi nationalists, people who think that their Punjabi identity is their real identity. And uh, in that way, feel a lot of connection, for example, to Sikhs and are very proud of it. And uh, and that leaks over in interesting ways. Like you can see that while this is not a majority view in Pakistan, there's enough of a subset like that, that you have people celebrating the statue of Maharaja Ranjit Singh in the Lahore fort. Right. That's that's the there are again, there are two groups doing that. One is just part nationalists for whom this is a straightforward Khalistani move. Right. It's like okay. India has to be brought down. Uh, one way to weaken India is to somehow encourage Sikh separatism. One way to encourage Sikh separatism is for us to cultivate Sikh symbols and people. Uh, and that's definitely uh, an explicit kind of policy. Uh, so the reason the statue is there in the first place is probably because of this. Because in the establishment, this would be the more powerful reason. But it's not the only reason. There are genuinely people who were very happy to see Maharaja Ranjit Singh there because they feel like, as a Punjabi nationalist, they identify with him. And that's not that rare. Yeah. It's like there's a, a fair number of these people, and especially in the intelligentsia, what you might consider like, you know, educated academic types. Uh, so I think that there is that element as well. Uh, but if I was to say that, uh, you know, I absolutely do not want to claim that someone like me would be typical of Pakistan, not at all typical. I think that that okay. is. So I have a couple of follow-ups. So this is, okay, um, you, you, identify as Pakistani American, but I mean, is that part of your Pakistani identity being Muslim and do you practice? And if not, then what's your, what's the, 
basis of your Pakistani identity outside no. of just being Pakistan? Right. I, I think it's mostly just being from Pakistan. Uh, and, okay. and the fact that I have from being sort of a nerd and a history buff or whatever, uh, a very acute sense of the fact that when things fall apart, shit really hits the fan, right? Uh, yeah. If Pakistan falls apart tomorrow morning, it will not be a pleasant experience for anyone. Uh, it will yeah. be a very unpleasant period after which, yeah, something else may appear that we may even like better than Pakistan. But the, from between here and there is a civil war and a lot of disorder. And I don't want that. Right. Right. So my identification with Pakistan is sort of practical in that way. OK, so my other question is, so do you think the the Pakistani ang or opposition is to India per se or Hinduism? I think it's both that they identify India as Hindu, first of all, right? In Pakistani propaganda, okay. there is no such thing as a secular India. India, secular India is a kind of a mask. It's the Mukota of Bajpai. Uh, it's this mask that the Hindu nationalists have put on to fool people. Uh, in reality, okay. India is as much a Hindu state as Pakistan is a Muslim state. Now, this is very silly and I think practically completely wrong. Uh, just in, in yeah. sort of practical terms, I'm not saying that there's nobody in India who has a mask or who thinks like that. There are people like that, obviously. Sure. Uh, but that the for the average Pakistani, uh, and maybe I'm overdoing this, uh, I hope the average Pakistani, if they object, will tell us in the comments. Uh, but the average yeah. Pakistani probably thinks that India as a secular nation is uh, a sort of a mask. Uh, so to, to them, it's the same thing. It's in India is Hindu. Interesting. Because I mean, like, it's funny because within India, right, the Hindu uh, people and actually, and part of me, I actually agree with this point is I think India isn't secular. It, it's, it has this weird secularism, which I don't even buy into because I'm because I'm from America right I'm much more connected to the American notion of secularism which is you keep the church and the state or religion and the state separate and um, the India problem and I, you've had guests on when you guys talk about this is India somehow decides in some cases it's gonna play ball with religion in other cases it's gonna step away from it and and I think Insofar as Pakistan saying India isn't secular, I think in, the Pakistanis are correct there, but I don't think they're correct in saying they're it's a pro-Hindu kind of secular. Right, and of course I mean, there would be an endless argument about that. But I think the the main point there though is that whether India is secular or not formally is partly, yeah. you know, what is the what is the ideal with which you want the citizens to identify. Right. Sure. Uh, Pakistan as the fortress of Islam is a kind of an idea that is built into Pakistani identity. Uh, again, it's not universal, right? You, especially in the intelligentsia, you do find a number of people who will object to that and who, in fact, uh, Pakistani liberals who are completely blind to sort of the Muslim separatism and supremacism that is at the heart of Pakistan. To them, Pakistan is right. just another democracy uh, and uh, just a little distance away from what the ideal secularism would be, which is kind of funny. Right. Uh, but anyway, they, uh, the thing is that in you have an identity with which 90%, let's say, of Pakistanis 
at least potentially they can identify with it. They feel they're Muslim and they have a Muslim state with which they can identify. Now, there are going to be some yeah. people in Pakistan who are not Muslim, right? And it is difficult for them to fully identify with this fortress of Islam idea. But yeah. the interesting thing is that a number of them do identify with it. They feel in practical terms, they feel Pakistani and they are Pakistani nationalists and they will stand by Pakistan and fight for Pakistan. There are Christians and uh, Parsis and whatever who have had, you know, joined the Pakistani army, who have done great things for Pakistan diplomatically and abroad and everything. And yet there is something in the ideal with which they cannot fully identify. The thing on the Indian sure. side is that I, my impression, at least, is that the Indian ruling elite had this idea, uh, or the Congress party at least had this idea, that the a secular India is something with which every Indian can identify, right? In in theory, at least. And, yeah, and, 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 and I think you're right there. But I think, like, I think Indians on the whole identify with what I would call not secularism, but Hindu pluralism, uh -huh. um, in the sense, in, in in the sense of, as much as they like to say secular, I think what they're really saying is, in the Hindu sense of, hey, we're cool with whatever you do, just don't interfere with what we're doing. Yeah, and I which think is that which is actually sort of not again yeah. historically not atypical at all, right? If you look at Western Europe, you look at the United States, which is like this big secular country. Uh, it's also very Christian, right? Uh, the the yeah. ethos of the country is very Christian, and uh, that's uh, that's okay. I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so, so I was no. going to say that this is something that uh, actually is not that strange, uh, and that's uh, the, the what, what is the Christian Democratic Party in Germany, right? They identify as Christian and as German and as democratic. Right. Uh, the, the, there are people in America, very sophisticated people, who will give you a whole long spiel about how this is a Judeo-Christian country. And the Judeo part was added after the Holocaust as a kind of, uh, you know, it's off to the <laughs> It's completely a Christian country in that sense. Uh, so if India is going to no, be it, Hindu it, it, that way, but, but the thing is, in America, if you are a Muslim in America who is able to see all this, who is able to see that America is fundamentally sort of Western European Christian in many very important ways, uh, it still doesn't mean sure. that we don't have legal equality, right? I am as a Muslim American, I have legal equality and I feel like I can go to court and say, these are my rights, right? Uh, right. That's the minimum no, I, that you I, want I, in I a country. Uh, if you can't get that, I, then you are in trouble. I think you're totally right. So. So one of the things I, I think I think it's interesting is because for me, um, America is it's culturally Christian, but it's like the founding fathers clearly weren't like the Christian that we think, right? Like our evangelical, they were mostly deists, and some of them were Christian. There's a reason why they use the word creator right. Right. versus right. God. I mean, right. it, 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 these are all things we learn in like law school, uh, partially in right. law school, right? Why they use these. Because um, they were very, very, very interested in how they're going to frame the Constitution. In in India, it's it, it's similar in that sense. Is you know obviously the founders of the, I mean mostly men in India, I'll just like in the U.S., where guys are a mix of Muslim and 
and uh, like Ambedkar was a Buddhist or atheist or whatever he was. And then you had a bunch of people that formed the constitution based upon what they wanted the ideal republic in their country to be. But the, the core of India is still at some level Hindu. And, and I, I use that word in a very nebulous, like amorphous sense, because it's just about this larger idea of universal like acceptance of things, right? It's not because, and I don't think it, it's necessarily doctrinal, um, I think it's much more because there was no central freaking tenant, right? There was so many, it was already such a diverse thing um, and that just got grouped together and it was not a big deal to include Islam. I mean, like I, when I, when I was in India so many times, I would go to, you know, Sufi uh, uh, places of worship where, where, you know, like there was a, a Sufi uh, saint that, you know, the, I think it's called a, a, a yeah, Dargab, Dargab, right? Yeah. I, I told Yeah. Yeah, done God. So I used to go to those places and it, it just felt much more integrated than, for example, in U.S. I don't think it's as integrated in terms of religious worlds. It's enclaves like you'll have an enclave of in Michigan, right, where you have hardcore Muslim people. In, I mean, what right, I mean, right. hardcore is just like a group of uh, Muslims living there. Not that they're hardcore themselves um, or, uh, or Islamist, whatever. But you have these enclaves and. I, there's not much integration of that culture within the larger culture. In India, I think there is. So it's it's. Oh, a- wait, 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 wait. I, look, I have a. I, so are you talking about Hamtrak, which is the only? That is really the only Muslim ghetto in the United States. That's equivalent to something like in Europe, right? I mean, it's not even a ghetto. It's like fifty some percent Muslim, right? Well, yeah, kind of. But I'm also talking about like, for example, like the the larger ideas of is like Islamic ideas or or. Uh, uh, words or theology or whatever playing a, a, a role within the larger media, right? And obviously, I think this is a, a, an issue of population and demographic, right? You have 200 million Muslims in India. You kind of have to you have to do that in your movies and your TV shows and your medias. But in the U.S., you have a very small demographic of Muslims or Hindus or anyone that's not Christian. So yeah, yeah. but I mean, but but I mean, so I mean, you know, you were talking about how there's more integration and obviously it's part of Indian culture. But one thing that I've always noticed about Indians that's very different than the United States is that in Indian, in India, uh, they don't really understand identity switching. Whereas in the United States, that's very common. What do you mean like, by that? A substantial number of Muslims in the United States leave Islam and become other religions, like 20 to 30%. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. And the same thing with Hindus and, and Buddhists and the different Christians, like the average churn rate in the United States is about like 50%, which means that there's a 50% probability that you leave the identity of your birth, which, I mean, obviously in India, it's like way lower than that, right? It's probably like 0.1% or something low, you know, right. just because it's not done. So I think that's a, it's a huge mental, a huge like mental um, paradigm that's difficult, I think, for a lot of Indians to understand and vice versa in the United States. Well, a lot I mean, of Indians, they think like conversion is aggressive, but in the United States, it's radical Protestant tradition. It's just like part of the foundation of it. Oh, in that sense, I think you're right because like we don't have, I don't think, especially in India, you have this idea of, you can, I, like Kushal Mera, and I don't know a bunch of people, and myself, I'm agnostic, right? I don't know where I fall on these lines of, I can consider myself a very cultural Hindu and I know a lot about it, but I, I, I'm still consider myself Hindu insofar as, a larger faith, right? Um, but I think in India, that conversion is a little more tricky because you're still part of that 
cultural matrix. Well, in the U.S., it, 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 I, I would assume that when you shift over to like something like Christianity or you move out of Christianity, there's like this seismic shift in your life about how you engage with the world. Because on the whole, right, like American society is very, quote unquote, secular. Going down the street, you're not going to see too many religious things. You're not going to like the, the, the even the fault, the cultural and the 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 festivals are very secular. So I think like even Christmas is secular and I, I don't think that's the same thing in India. So you, it's a weird dynamic that shifts when you are depending upon your identity in each place. But even with that, uh, I think that this is actually something people have observed and written about also that in India, India is actually much more multicultural than most places in the world. Uh, and in, it's sort of deeply multicultural yeah. that it means that it actually accepts the fact that there are many different kinds of people. Uh, there isn't just one uniform, you know, like everyone lives in the same, goes to the same malls and shops at the same food, JC Penny or whatever. It is really very different cultures. Right. Uh, but at the same time, when we're talking about the national idea and the nation, nation state, I mean, there's a formal equality of citizens that citizens would like to see uh, if they're going to be in that country. If you're a very small minority, I think you can, you can adjust uh, because it's very explicit. You understand that you are yeah. not Turkish. You are a Jew in Turkey, uh, but you have a certain special status or a right within rights within that uh, category. You don't identify as Turk as the same way as the other Turks do, right? And that's okay. That can work. Uh, but in a country like India with, say, 200 million Muslims, uh, what, 30, 40 million Christians, whatever, with such large numbers, is it possible to have a national idea that formally doesn't accept you as equal citizens? I don't think so. And I think I think that's where I, there was someone I recently read an article or not, not an article, but a, a scholar writing about that, not just Muslims and Christians, but historically, the plur, idea of pluralism in India came from the idea that there are so many different convert, I mean, converging and competing interests within like a, a kingdom that the king couldn't pick a side necessarily, given the fact that he had to deal with all these different things. Um, so like, like, for example, like Hindu kings would patronize Jain, Jain monasteries or Buddhist monasteries and, and vice versa. I mean, with all these, it, it was, it was basically trying to maintain some sort of balance within society, not out of necessarily like a, a theoretical or theological reason, but out of a practical reason, right. To, to maintain balance. So I think India today, even now has, because of its large, minorities a large uh, not percentage necessarily but the the just the sheer demographic minorities they have to manage those kind of con contravailing interests right so it has to be more secular than maybe a pakistan well pakistan needs to be or for example like israel or any of the other places that have a very almost monocultural um sense about them but I mean, that's that's not true in all cultures or all like Malaysia, the, the Malay Muslim identity is hegemonic, even though they were only 50 percent at independence. And now they're like 60 percent. It's just yeah. they they own the country because they they feel they are natives. Right. So they have the Indians and the Chinese just kind of partly they just frankly accept it because I think that's sort of unique to Malaysia, maybe because they they really the Indians and the Chinese both are recent enough arrivals that there's very clearly a picture of these are the outside people who came to Malaysia. I, I, think uh, 
I think it's very different in India. Uh, I don't think like the Indian Muslims, for example, are not clearly not Persians who came to India. They're Indians who became Muslim. Uh, there's, uh, it's not likely to be the same exact thing will work there. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think Malaysia is probably one of the, it's one of the unique places. I mean, I guess Indonesia, is Indonesia like 70% Muslim? No, it's like 90%, right? Except for Bali. Yeah, it's like 85 to 90, depending on which census. Yeah, except, except for Bali. And that's just like this weird amalgam or this weird situation that sits on. Well, yeah, I mean, Indonesia, the only thing I would say about Indonesia is that 85 to 90% Muslim um, disaggregates like a diversity of Islamic like practice and orientation, right? So like the island of Java is actually a lot less Muslim than Sulawesi or like Northern Sumatra because yeah. Javanese had like the Hindu, Buddhist and native like high culture that kind of like integrated into a synthesis, right? Whereas yeah. like Sulawesi only became Muslim in the last like couple of centuries and they didn't have their own like indigenous culture. So it's kind of like a little weird that way where that number I think is like, you know, like when, when we socialize with Indonesians, my parents would always talk about how people from Indonesia, and by this they meant Javanese, the largest group, were way less Muslim than people from Malaysia. Okay. You know? okay. So here's the right. That's, that's a thing. I have actually happened to have been to Indonesia, and that was something striking in Java. You can buy beer on roadside kokas, you know, those little stands where you buy cigarettes. You can yeah. buy beer too. Uh, that's not something you will see in Malaysia. Uh, but anyway, the so uh, actually, I have the, a follow up to to Razib. So so earlier, Razib, uh, uh, Omar and I were talking about like the identity of Pakistan and its like uh, connection to Islam. So Bangladesh is a unique situation, right? It was pa- it was Pakistan for for a good twenty twenty five years before it became Bangladesh. So how does the Pakistani identity manage Indianness, Pakistaniness, and Islam. You mean the Pakistani or the Bangladeshi? I'm sorry, Bangladeshi. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I thought about this a little. Um, like the, the difference between Bangladesh and Pakistan is, um, you know, I I don't know. Like Omar can like speak more to this, but Punjabis that are Hindu and Sikh in India don't seem to have a shared culture anymore with Punjabis that are in Pakistan. Whereas like Bangladesh, uh, Bengalis in Bangladesh and Bengalis in West Bengal. They can read, I mean, they still have the shared popular and high culture. And so that means that um, unless you go like full Salafi or something, it's hard to deny that there's a non-Islamic component to your identity. Also, you're like, you know, one of your national poets is a Hindu, um, you know, it's just like, it's in your face um, and you can't really deny it. So I think the average Bangladeshi, um, you know, they're sincere believing Muslims, but they have this other aspect of their identity where um, they're really proud of being Bengali. Some of it is generational. Like my grandfather's generation were much more pro-Pakistan because they had to deal with, um, you know, the Hindu elites. Like my grandfather was a doctor, but like, you know, there are, there are many times in the early, he lived, for, he was born in 1896. So he, he practiced a long time ago. And there were times where he was the only Muslim doctor in the district. And yeah. so when Pakistan came, he was actually quite happy because now everyone's Muslim and, you know, he's not a minority and he's not marginalized. But my parents, they had the opposite experience where they, you know, we would call it racism kind of the way they were treated. Like it was, they had like Jim Crow like experiences where, you know, Biharis would kick Bengalis off buses in Dhaka because they needed to sit down. Whoa. They would just start, they would just start screaming and people would usually like get off because, you know, they would threaten to like call the authorities. 
right. the bus drivers will kick Bengalis. So they experienced a totally different thing um, about like identity where they were oppressed by the West, you know, by Urdu speakers or West Pakistanis. And there was, there was a lot of racial like contempt towards Bengalis from the West Pakistani people, which like, I mean, it's not like that extreme, but it was there. Everyone always sure. knew, you know what I'm saying? So, so um, yeah. There's one thing interesting that I've listened to a few of your podcasts before, and you've been very particular about the fact that, that your, I think your mother, right? Uh, she was very proud that you didn't learn Urdu or you guys didn't speak Urdu and you were speaking more Bengali than Urdu. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I think, so, Urdu is so connected to the idea of Islam, then how does Bengali connect to to Islam if it does? Or or is it like just this, I, that, that language is just connected to Bangladesh? I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I don't get this whole idea. I, like my parents have, like, they, you know, they socialize with a lot of Pakistanis. And I can tell you like there were literal like shouting matches where um, they just reject this idea that Urdu has anything to do with Islam. Like they just reject it in totality. Um, they, they don't see the point of it. Like basically their position is the only language that has anything to do with Islam is Arabic. Okay. okay. Every other language has like equal relationship to Islam. So they don't accept that like Persian or Udu or any of these other languages have anything special to do with Islam. They just think it's a historical accident, so they don't care. I think that was an, sort of an artifact of North Indian <clears throat> Muslim nationalism. This was created by North Indian elites who were at that time Urdu and Persian speaking. And uh, and then the whole Urdu-Hindi controversy, obviously Urdu and Hindi are really sister languages. They're the same language sort of modified yeah. in slightly different directions. Uh, but they became religious symbols and Muslims identifying with Urdu and Hindus identifying with Hindi and so on. Uh, that whole that whole event sort of was not Bengal specific, and once East Pakistan became East Pakistan, uh, the ruling elite in Pakistan was clearly West Pakistani, and for them this was central to their identity, right? Urdu, Hind, the whole business of becoming North Indian uh, identification with North Indian Urdu culture, and uh, right. that wasn't the case in East Pakistan. That one of the reasons why they mistrusted Bengalis so much, right? Because they felt it was almost like this seemed to be treacherous to them. It was like this un-Islamic thing that these people yeah. don't want to learn Urdu. Well, I, I do have to like, one thing I, I will interject in here too is also, um, Dhaka used to be like, there used to be a lot of Urdu poetry in Dhaka. So the, the upper class, the Muslim upper class in much of Bengal, they were Urdu speaking, even if they were of Bengali origin. Like that was the, like Bengali literature, the Bengali, Bengal Renaissance was a Hindu thing. It only expanded to Muslims later on, right? And I have answered, like my paternal grandfather's like grandfather, like I heard one, my dad mentioned offhand that he grew up speaking Urdu. And then at some point he decided, they decided that like, I don't know, something happened, I mean, probably because like, you know, British politics and the colonial regime, there was no point in speaking Urdu in Bengal. And so he raised his son speaking mostly Bengali. And my grandfather didn't know any Urdu. And so, you know, in three generations, they'd like become Bengali speaking. And my dad knew Urdu because he grew up in Pakistan and he went to West Pakistan for education. That wasn't a big deal. But um, basically, there's this whole identity of like people who are Muslim, but also Bengali speaking, and there's no contradiction. But that's, that is in some ways a relatively recent thing because the identification of the language with the Hindu looks for a while. Yeah. But that's like a historical thing. It, it, it's not a real thing anymore. And, you know... Yeah. There's no. And then like, there was this phenomena, well, you know, when you mentioned Biharis, 
when the Pakistani state was created, uh, there was, even in West Pakistan, there was a great shortage of trained Muslim officials. Uh, this was even more extreme in East Pakistan. And the uh, kind of lower level bureaucratic jobs were really dominated by settlers who came in from Bihar and UP. And uh, like the railways, it used to be some sort of a joke there that the railways are all Urdu speaking. Uh, the banks, the customs, the Pakistan International Airlines, whatever, all these things and the lower bureaucracy, uh, there was a very disproportionate number of uh, migrants and there was a lot of resentment in the local population and a lot of uh, sort of racism against the local population. And all of that played into the politics of what became East Pakistan and Bangladesh, I think. So, Rajiv, another question here is, uh, has, so Bengali is like a, you know, a Sanskrit-based language. What, what, is there anything still quote unquote Hindu about Bangladeshi society? Or is it kind of shifted to almost its own Islamic kind of culture or, or what, what remains of, I guess, like something like a hundred years ago in terms of like the, or thousand yeah. years ago of, of Hinduness, whatever you want to call that. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is like, I think it would depend on who you want to talk to and who's pretty, you know, like, since I'm an atheist, like, I don't have any investment in uh, yeah. in being, like, authentically Muslim or anything. But, I mean, it's just pretty obvious that the West Pakistanis were actually objectively correct in saying that people in, in East Pakistan were semi-Hindu. Um, like, I can, like, uh, like, people in Bangladesh wear saris, right? And it's not, yeah. it's not a shame, you know, it's not like a weird thing. It's like, of course you would wear a sari, you're Bengali. And, you know... Um, like the poetry is, you know, like Tagore is like, you know, the best, the greatest, I mean, Bengali poet, right? Yeah. Um, they, they take a lot of like pride in the literature and, and that sort of thing. I mean, it, there's nothing like explicitly Hindu in the religion, but in just sartorially, the way people dress, um, it's not, it's not as stark, you know, um, there's, there's still a lot of like, you know, Hindu, I think like cultural Hindu, like traditional Bengali cultural stuff is still there. Like dietarily, there's like very little difference because, you know, in Bengal, most people are not vegetarian anyway. Yeah. And, you know, poor people traditionally wouldn't eat beef because they couldn't afford it. So actually you could just eat each other's food. There wouldn't have been, a, it's mostly seafood, right? right. Um, so I, I, I think like the, there is the religious difference and some of it is like the religious, you know, as people become more Muslim, they change certain things. Um, you know, there is dialectical difference between Kolkata, um, you know, the Palabasha, whatever, like the, the, the beautiful, the beautiful language where it's like they actually purged a lot of uh, um, Persian words. And so there are certain words that like um, in standard, like Calcutta, Bengali, they substituted more sanitized words. But um, so Eastern, like East Bengali dialect or the, the standard actually has the same word as Hindi um, for some words, like for water, I think Bani is yeah. uh that's the word in hindi well in 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 western bengali it's jal right so um they substituted it or they they purified the language right and so yeah. there's certain things where it still has like more of an islamicate flavor but um i i think objectively you know people in bangladesh are much more just accepting of the fact that you know they're indian slash south asian like they wouldn't say indian because they're still more nationalistic but right. they definitely they're south asian and also like physically it's like you know, like a short, dark-skinned people, quite a few of them have Asiatic features. It's just harder to pull off the, oh, we're actually Persian or Arab thing. You know, sure. I mean, like, people laugh at you. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's, it's funny because, like, I think in, in, in 
especially like we we're talking earlier about in Tamil Nadu about the Dravidian movement. Um, so I, I grew up in like my, my family is whatever Brahmin or whatever. So the language I spoke was like a Sanskritized Tamil. So it was like the, like the grammar and all that syntax was all like, like Tamil, but a lot of the vocabulary would be very Sanskritized. Like you, for example, we would use, we have three different words for, for water, right? There's, if you have purified water, it's called Tirtam. Uh, if it's like regular water, jalam, and if it's like like really downgraded water, you call it need. And Tamil need means water. But the other three terms, other two terms, are very Sanskritized. So it was like this weird. I mean, it's not weird, but it's just you're kind of countervailing two different cultures in some sense, and you're kind of meshing them together. So I can understand why West Bengal might have become more Sanskritized to, to solidify their identity, while East Bengal would re- maintain whatever terms they were using before. Well, yeah, I mean, I think part of the issue is, I mean, there's a whole, like, you know, Eaton has written a lot about this. There used to be, like, more of a Bengali Muslim culture, kind of, but um, with the Mughal period, that was kind of shunted aside, and it became much more Persian and Urdu, and so there was kind of a vacuum when the Bengal Renaissance emerged where, Hindus just owned the language. They owned the culture. They were the culture producers, right? right. Um, the Beng- Bengali was the language of the peasants. In the East, Bengali was like the language of the peasants. And Urdu, for if you're a Muslim, was like, you know, the language of culture. Something happened, and I, you know, someone needs to do some research on this. Something happened in, in the 19th century where people like, you know, some parts of my family, because there are several parts of my family that actually have origins in Northwest India, and sure. they, they settled in Bengal. And you know, at some point they just decided we're going to become Bengali. That's obviously what happened, right? Right. And um, why was that? Why did they? Why did they make that change? As opposed to say, like in Hyderabad in the south, like people still speak Urdu if they're Muslim, right? They don't speak. Um, they don't speak whatever like the local like the the local languages of South India. Um, they speak their own language. Whereas in Bengal they were assimilated. And then what happened by like the tw- early twentieth century is you started to get enough education, enough development where it started to create their own middle class and they created their own self-identity, even though, you know, Calcutta, Kolkata, however you want to say it, like the Badrulaks there were still culturally dominant. In a way, the, the partition allowed the Muslim Bengalis to develop their own independent identity in a way while still leaning on the, you know, the, the, the Hindu cultural production. Yeah. Tagore's family was from what is now in East, East Bengal, right? right? And so like, there's another thing where it's like a lot of people in West Bengal actually have roots in the East, you know, because um, a lot of Hindus left, especially the, the you know, Badrulok class, the elite class. They just, like, left, you know, like, over, like, 20 years. And so there's, like, all these connections. And, you know, I was telling um, who was I was telling somebody, um, Bangladesh is now the number one tourist country um, to India now. And there's more people that go to, ba- go to India from Bangladesh for tourism than all yeah, of Western Europe. That's true. Wow. So, I read that. Yeah. yeah that, that's just <laughs> economic. Yeah, and that's just due to economics. And I see it on Facebook. Um, my cousins always go to Calcutta, like on weekend trips. Yeah. And um, they also like to go to Chennai for like the, I mean, I don't know what, okay, like basically for like anything like advanced medical, they go to South India because South, in, like they're just like, South India is just better at that stuff. Like they don't trust anybody like north of kind of like the southern two thirds of the peninsula. So they're always doing these like medical trips. Like all my old like relatives go to like South India for like medical stuff. And then all my young relatives go to Calcutta 
Um, sometimes, like, you know, they'll go check out, like, the Taj Mahal or something, but I see a lot of weekend-type right. trips to Calcutta. I think that's like, the Facebook. interesting thing that right. happened with Bangladesh, so, and the, the, it, it could probably happen, the same thing would have happened with West Pakistan if the barriers had been a little bit lower. Uh, that I think that it would be completely natural for people from Lahore to all the time be make, taking trips to Delhi or whatever. Uh, that would be, and now of course, there would be practical reasons as well, which is like the medical care. Uh, but uh, the, the establishment or the ruling elite uh, have uh, a much more serious fight going on the Western border than they do on the Bangladesh border, uh, so that this hasn't sort of developed, but it's never been too far. Uh, if you let things relax a little bit, it happens very, very quickly. People immediately start actually buying each other's products, going to these countries, speaking the language. They still watch the same movies, uh, eat the same food. So there's interesting things that can happen. Yeah, just a quick fact about the travel. I just Googled it. Non-stops between Dhaka and Calcutta are an hour, and with connections, they're right. three hours. Right. So it's not that long of a trip. It would be even less going from Lahore to Delhi. So when that happens, we'll be we'll be we'll beat Bangladesh. <laughs> so so kind of how I mean I would like to know like so what is the relationship right now between people in Pakistan and Bangladesh? Like say you're like in college, right? Like I, there would be like a Pakistani Students Union Association, but we would have like a in, in, Indian Subcontinental Club. There was never a, a Bangladeshi Students Union, even though there was quite a few Bangladeshis. I, I, I saw them more connected to like the Indian subcontinent, but the Pakistanis tend to focus only on Pakistan. I mean, why would that, I mean, if you guys have any insight to that, it would be like difference of what they view as their larger cultural my, my guess is that it's partly just the late emergence of Bangladesh as a separate identity and Bangladeshis as a successful immigrant group is relatively later, right? When we came to the US, I'm very old now, so I came in 1986. Uh, the, uh, the dominant thing for South Asian doctors, you would either be Pakistani or Indian. Uh, it was hardly any Bangladeshi doctors. Now, if you look at the residency slots, uh, the Bangladeshis actually get the same number as the Pakistani doctors do, or maybe even more. Uh, so there's been a change. They took a while. Bangladesh was really underdeveloped compared to West Pakistan. That was one of the reasons they rebelled. Uh, but now that has changed. And now, obviously, it's in many ways doing better than Pakistan uh, economically and uh, in other social indicators. So I think some of that change is going to happen. You'll see Bangladeshi student unions soon, just because there will be more Bangladeshi students in American universities, maybe more more than there are Pakistani students in the coming years. Uh, but as far as the relationship, it's interesting that for the Pakistanis, uh, they tend to see Bengalis as sort of semi-traitors, right? The people who, who left the fortress of Islam and sided with the Hindus. Uh, the Bangladeshis resent that. And I think there's some subterranean thing going on in, uh, with a lot of people, not with everyone, obviously, but with a lot of people. Conversely, there's some Islamist Bangladeshis I've met who strongly identify with Pakistan, not that they want to be part of Pakistan, they don't, uh, but they, they, they feel that in their own government and in their own country, things are not as Islamic as they should be, and that they should really become more identified with Pakistan, with Saudi Arabia, with whatever, and become more Islamic, and that it, they should move away from what they see as an Indian cultural domination of Bangladesh. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of what Omar says is right. I can tell you when my parents came in the early 80s, um, my dad got this little mimeograph book. It was called The Bangladeshis of America, and it listed all of the people and the phone numbers. So uh, <laughs> there, wasn't, there weren't that many. I looked at the census numbers. There's very few. I, you know, I talked to my friend Rehan Salam about this. His parents came in the late 70s, so it was a really small number. I mean, my parents have spent very little time in, in independent Bangladesh as well. So um, I think, like, you know, the people that came here early, they're going to have weak ties. Like, my parents' formative events were in Pakistan as Pakistanis. And, you know, they were in Bangladesh, like, not that long, right? So um, in terms of, like, you know, what Omar says about the Islam, really, really Muslim people is correct. There's, like, a small minority that are hyper-Muslim, and, you know, they identify with the Islamic world and Pakistan and all that stuff. Um, most people are more just more chill. Like, I mean, it seems that, you know, they have this issue where they were like attacking and killing atheists a couple of years ago in Bangladesh. You don't hear about that in Pakistan, but it's cause like no one's stupid enough to write a blog about how there are atheists in Pakistan. So it's actually like an indicator of like that Bangladeshi society is a bit more liberal and just right. more like broad than Pakistani society um, in terms of like the public display of like religious heterodoxy. You know, because, I mean, there are still are, like, 10% of, of Bangladeshis are still Hindu. I mean, they're still very visible, you know? so yes, um, Which is not the case in Pakistan. And the same thing, you know, with the with the public behavior thing. I have seen Bangladeshis uh, who are around everyone else completely comfortable with drinking beer and whatever, but around Pakistanis get very conscious of that because they are aware of the fact that the social norms somehow have diverged, diverged a little bit. Uh, Bangladeshi middle class can afford to be a little less Islamic than the Pakistani middle class has to be. Yeah, and I, th I think it's partly just in Pakistan, like what's binding the country together and what's your central identity, right? Um, this whole idea of like a Mughal identity is really vague. A straight up Islamic identity is not vague. It's like very clear and distinct. With Bangladesh though, it's a it's an ethnically homogenous country and it's actually a natural nation state in a European sense. Like it's united by language, it has a dominant religion, and you know, it has like a capital city. Um, and so, you know, I think like everything makes sense in that way and it's coherent. And so you don't have to lean back on an Islamic vacation or sorry, an Islamic um, identity. You don't have to lean back on an Islamic identity so much because you have other identities you can lean on. Right. And so, like I said, it's like when I saw my parents arguing with, with their, their friends of like Muslim background from India or Pakistan who tend to be Urdu speakers, you know, I mean, sometimes they get mad, but like, uh, honestly, it was just clear that they weren't going to concede that there was something more authentically Islamic. And, I, and part of it is like my family's background. Um, you know, I have a lot of ulems on both sides of my family. My paternal grandfather was an ulem, right? So, I mean, I, and my dad like memorized the Quran by the time he was like 10. They just, they did that stuff in my family. So it's not like they're insecure about me being Islamic. My mom is descended from a Sufi saint. There's all this stuff going on. So it's just like, they're like, no, we're not gonna concede that we're like less Islamic. Um, you know, Arabic is the language of God. Okay, we understand that. But, you know, like, who cares about Persian? Or, and also, like, you know, Bengalis are quite proud of their culture. They're almost, like, chauvinistic about their language. So um, I think, like, I mean, they don't come out and say it, but they're just like, your language sounds uglier than ours. So why are we going to, like, accept that it's superior in any way? So, I mean, Bangladesh is like a, a decent-sized country. I mean, is it 
I'm sure there's a lot of diversity within Bangladesh itself. Um, is is there like other dominant languages outside from Bengal? I mean, uh, well, uh, Bengali. In, well, in I mean, the issue, the issue is like um, uh, the Chittagong and Silet dialects are almost unintelligible. Um, so there, I mean, I can kind of understand it a little. I know. Um, so basically, Silet in the northeast and in the south Chittagong, like their their local dialects are not intelligible. Most of those people know Bengali. So standard Bengali is based on like the Dhaka dialect. Their yeah. local regional dialects, um, like my family's from Kumila, which is just to the, like it, my family is from what used to be like um, uh, Plain Tripura. Um, oh, okay. Oh, from yeah. India, India region in Tripura. Yeah, well that's, that's, that's hill country triple. That's mostly hill country. So Kumila, the Bangladesh part, most of Plain Tripura is actually in Bangladesh. A little bit is in India and all of hill country Tripura is in India. So my, my maternal grandmother, like she always tells these stories. She almost got killed by the elephant of the Maharani of Tripura because it went insane and it like stampeded and her and her best friend like jumped into a pond and they hid and, and all this stuff. So I know that like she was under, she, she lived in the princely state of Tripura when she was little. Right. So my family's right. from that area. They speak Bengali, but it's somewhat different. Um, okay. And so as people get educated, though, they speak the standard Bengali, right, which is based on, I mean, to some extent, the Kolkata dialect, which I can understand, you know, right. like, you know, the good speech. But um, there are certain things that, that, that Dhaka Bengali is a little different. And it's like it's like American English versus British English, although I think it's like less than the difference between that. Random fact some of the differences in Eastern Bengali, like the Eastern part of Bangladesh, may be due to a Tibeto-Burman um, influence. Uh, there's certain like there's, cer there's certain like things and transitions that look like it's actually Tibeto-Burman influence in the language. So, I mean, I mean, so Bhutan's right next to you to Bengal. Is, I mean, I mean Bangladesh. Is there a lot of influence of of Bhutan into uh, Bangladeshi culture? No, know? there. I mean, you know, it's weird. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm one of the first people that, like, looked deeply into the genetics. And so, like, in yeah. Eastern Bengal, everyone's about, like, 15%, like, East Asian-like and, like, where that's from. And, and you know, on some level, a lot of Bangladeshis are just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like, you know, like, I have I have, an, I have um, one of my cousins on her mom's side, which I'm not related to, one of her uncle's nickname is Jackie Chan. <laughs> That's like telling what he looks like, okay? And so, but on the other hand, they don't actually know about any of this. They know, like some people, like I know that I'm descended from like, you know, this Sufi guy um, who came from Delhi, whose original ancestors were Sunnis from Persia that left in the 17th century, right? Okay. And then they moved to Bengal and there's a Quran that has every single male in that lineage up to like, like it, it up to me, it like broke because that's through the maternal lineage. But there's a Quran right. like, in Noakali in southeastern Bangladesh that has all of that, right? I know that, but I don't. Nobody knows where that 15% East Asian came from. It's like there's like total amnesia. We know that the mixture happened like a thousand years ago, like you know, 1,500 years ago. So there's obviously connections to you know East Asia and these Buddhist cultures, and you see sure. it in the ruins. There are Buddhist ruins, especially in eastern Bangladesh. Um, and there's still a small indigenous community of Buddhists in Chittagong that are Bengali. They're called the Baura. There aren't that many of them, but they're an unbroken lineage back to, to Bengali Buddhism, although they're mostly Theravada now because they're influenced by Burma. Um, but yeah, I mean, as I said, like, Bengalis can't deny that, you know, on their faces, they show evidence of an Eastern imprint that's not present in people from the, from, from the, from the West and the South, right? So, um, right. yeah, but they don't know how to, like, interpret it. I mean, you're going so far back. I think it's difficult to 
interpret it, right? Even if you find it, like how, how do you figure out what parts of that culture are, are mixed in with yours? Yeah, I mean, well, the language is pretty obvious, right? Yeah. The language is pretty obvious. One of the one of the arguments people make for why Bengal became Muslim, Eastern Bengal became Muslim more than Western Bengal is that like Indian Hindu culture was much less well-established. And one of the hypotheses could be that there was like this Tibeto-Burman influence. And so the matrix wasn't as robust. Um, as like Muslims came in, they could convert people a lot easier because there wasn't a, a strong caste system. When I look at the genetics, it's not nearly as stratified as Pakistan or India. It looks right. like people are just, so when I say it's like a European nation state, like even the genetics, it looks like a European nation state. There's not that much like caste stratification or anything. There's a few groups that are different, but most Bengalis from the Bangladesh region, they just look very similar to each other, which, you know, if you look at like Tamil Nadu, like Brahmins are, you can model a, Brahm, a Tamil Brahmin as like 75% North Indian Brahmin and 25% South Indian. Okay. Right. I mean, it's like, they're very different from other other Tamils. Like in Bengal, like the Bengali Brahmins are somewhat different, but everybody else kind of looks the same. Except so for the Dalit groups. So you use uh, these numbers of 20, 75%, 25%. How far does that genetic data go back, right? Like what are you looking at? Is it like 250 years of data uh, of data that you mm -hmm. into, or how far do you see that? Oh, these are just contemporary people. So if yeah. I if I if I look at someone who's a Tamil Brahmin, um, yeah. how can I create a Tamil Brahmin from the other populations I have? Um, yeah. If the Tamil Brahmin was just like a UP Brahmin, I would just say they're 100% UP Brahmin. Yeah, but like, I mean, what, what I'm asking is, it's current population, right? Like, we don't know what the genetic breakdown was 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 mm -hmm. years ago. There are certain ways you can infer certain things. Like, I, it looks to me, it looks to me that the mixture happened really early, um, like say like 1,000 years ago, probably with local women looking at the mitochondrial DNA. And then okay. once there were enough, like, you know, Tamil, Brahmin, like, you know, females for these men to marry, um, the mixture stopped happening. And so it's been an endogamous community um, for like a thousand years. That's what it looks like to me. Like, if I look at the genotype of a Tamil Brahmin, um, they're not necessarily inbred, but like, they all look exactly the same. Like, it's obviously an endogamous community for a long time. Like, you could tell the difference between, like, a, for example, like, I belong to Iyengar, and, mm -hmm. and there's other people's Iyers. Would there be a difference between those two? Have you ever looked at those? I, you know, I, I, so in terms of genome-wide, like, admixture analysis, there's not a difference. But if they're endogamous communities, if I looked at relatedness, there should be a difference, right? And so, yeah. um, like, when I look at the South Indian Brahmin, South Indian Brahmin groups, like, from the, the four major South Indian states, they actually look very similar. Um, and so my hypothesis is they were founded, in general, at approximately the same time from, like, a, maybe a single migration from northern india um that's the only way that i can explain it there's a few subtle differences once you get into maharashtra and urissa things are changing yeah. right but the yeah, four yeah, southern yeah. states those brahmins look very similar to each other which i mean it's interesting i mean you say that i mean you say like a thousand years i mean but we know like for example like someone like nagarjuna uh who's you know buddhist right and he was a apparently a brahmin from andhra pradesh was around third or fourth century ce so there has to be been some sort of admixture even before that period of time if if that was so prevalent mm -hmm. yeah i mean yeah the statistics tend to pick up the last admixture date so um and, and it depends on the numbers too if the predominant numbers came at a certain time that's going to be the signal you see but almost certainly there were things that were happen happening earlier i mean you know the earliest like um the earliest tamil literature as you know um exhibits like sanskrit influence right oh 100 yeah 
Yeah, and that's like two thousand years ago. I mean, I think I, I, I more than two thousand actually. But in any case, I think like one of the issues that I brought up on my blog is this idea of like Dravidians being primordial and Indo Indo Aryans being um, like intrusive, uh, you know, and all this stuff. I think it's actually interesting. Well, uh, Omar and I discussed that. Okay. Um, why, uh, partially, right? So it's it's great to have your input on this. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it, I I think everything actually happens simultaneously in a lot more ways than we can understand today. And that it's not just like a simple sequence because you see these like genetically and culturally these Indo-European influences in the deep South and, you know, vice versa in much of like, you know, like in Sindh and Balochistan, it looks like, I mean, Gujarat, like there are, there are, there are toponyms. There are like, um, there are, there are names like rivers, like in definitely in Maharashtra, but also as far as Gujarat that look like Dravidian, you know? Um, on the other hand, in the Eastern well, Ganges, there's not much evidence for that. India, right? I mean, what? in terms of recent times, um, Maharashtra is considered South India too, right? It's all these parts. Don't, of don't, it don't, is, don't tell them that. Yeah, I mean, parts of it are below the Vindhya Mountains. And normally, I, you know, it, no, that's totally uh, true. But if you tell them that they're South Indian, they'll get mad at you. I know. I was just in Bombay, like literally like a day ago. And uh, yeah, you're right. They do get mad at you when you tell them you're South Indian. There, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's like weird because. Um, South India has all these like positive social statistics, but um, there are a lot of people who are not South Indian who are like, you know, they don't want to be associated with South India. I don't, I don't know why, because like maybe like the skin color issues. I don't know. That's, that's literally the only thing that I can think of, you know, in terms of just like, I mean, why would you want to be associated with no offense, you know, UP or something, which has like some serious problems, you know? Um, So anyway, I think that's interesting when people say like, are you South Indian, North Indian or whatever? And I feel like um, there's, there's things about Indian regionalism that I think that are hard to understand for people that are in the diaspora because we've been Brown our whole lives without differentiating. Oh, yeah. It's actually really funny. Cause like, I mean, I think about it and my, my sisters and I were like darker, much darker than our parents. Both our parents are pretty lighted skinned as they say. Um, and, and we're, and we're darker. And, and like, sometimes people will always be like, concerned if that like we're related because my, my my dad's pretty light skinned and, and my grandmother was even lighter and the rest of our generation like pretty much all me and my cousins are dark so obviously this phenotype variation doesn't necessarily mean anything um but I, I i always find it interesting like my grandmother would used to tell me oh you've gotten so dark and these color color issues come up you know within our community i i, I don't know where it comes from i i'm assuming it's like this britishness but um it it it's just, it's odd to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it definitely like predates the British. Cause like, I know like the Muslims were pretty into it in terms of distinguishing between like black Muslims and white, mis- white Muslims, you know? Sure. Sure. So I, sure, mean, but I mean, I mean, some people make it to be like, you know, they take it back to ancient world. That was kind of like color demarcation. But I think like there's so many different scholars, including like, you know, even in, I don't know if you ever uh, watched that uh, or read the disagreement between Mary Beard and Nicholas uh, Talib about yeah uh, no, no, no. I actually followed it I, I I wrote a blog post on that um here like T- TLDR um Talib's an asshole but he was actually more right than Beard in that in that yeah. in that argument I mean yeah, I, I mean she was I mean I know what she was trying to say but it's like you know how like a lot of the leftists are just like oh like all these like racists are into skulls some of the yeah. some of the some of the scholarship she was citing for sub-Saharan Africans in England was literal skull scholarship. Really? Yes. 
it was cemeteries with like skulls and morphology, which is like very, very unreliable. That's like eugenics. Like the and, yeah, I mean, it's not literally, but they did use those methods. So it's it's yeah. one of those things where liberals like make fun of like craniology and phrenology, but when it supports yeah. some sort of view that they want to support, they have no problem citing it. I saw the same thing with like something about Cleopatra being black and Vox. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't think Egypt was. Uh, I'm guessing Egypt was more like Arab than it was. Uh, 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 West, uh, you can say West Asian, West Asian. Yeah, I mean, we have we have ancient DNA, so we know that. And we, there's yeah. plenty, I mean, that, that's all like, anyway, I mean, like Talib was more right. I mean, he was kind of saying it in a very Talebian way. Well, just being a dick. Yeah, it's just being like, when you go full dick, it's it's yeah. hard to, you know, have people. And like, you know, there there were people of Sub-Saharan Africa that obviously were in the northern part of the Roman Empire. It's or Sub-Saharan African ancestors. It's just, there wasn't that many. And most people from Africa were olive-skinned Mediterranean people. The vast majority, yeah, so... But like someone like Hannibal, right? You know, from Carthage, he was probably Ethiopian-like or uh, something. I like mean, Han- Hannibal. Hannibal was Hannibal was mostly Punic, right? And he had a Greek ancestry too. I mean, we have yeah, like, yeah. we have like you know depictions of him. I mean, it's depicted in like Greco-Roman style, but um, I mean, he was definitely not. I mean, he was definitely like you know not like of Sub-Saharan African probably origin. I mean, it's just that the, the the Carthage was like not very admixed. I mean, it, it did have admixture, but the admixture was often Greek because they often like, um, they often like what slave trading in Sicily in the, sure. in the Greek colonies. So, right. you know, um, I mean, I'm just saying like the modern, uh, the modern categories are not, I mean, like, you know, the St. Augustine of Hippo, um, which is in modern Algeria has been yeah. listed as like a great, you know, black philosopher. And like, he was obviously not black. He was like, you know, of mixed Punic and like, you know, Latin Italian, Italian right. colonial origin. Right. So, um, you know, we know we know certain things like that. As far as India, going back to India, I don't know like what was going on in the ancient times. Like, it's almost certain that there were like strong color differences between initial between ethnic groups initially. But um, you know, if you read like the ancient stuff, um, it every it's not always clear. Like, you know, like Draupadi, I think is is considered dark is dark skinned, um, yeah, Mahabharata, and she was super beautiful yeah. supposedly. So it's not always clear that like the modern tendencies that we see were around then i think i think it's safe to say that actually ancient people were in some ways more complex in their cultural attitudes partly because they didn't have homogenizing pop culture like everyone well, you know, they didn't have like pictures of ritik rashan everywhere well it's, it's not just that right like it covered a, a vast gamut of an area right like for yeah. example uh the 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 mother of the of the twins right Nakula and Sahadeva from uh, her name is Madri and she is from this region called Madra they were considered which is closer to like Pakistan it's in Pakistan near Afghanistan region and they were super super golden light skinned and that's how they're described right but at the same point you have Draupadi is super dark Krishna who's super dark Arjuna whose name actually means white is super dark um, but there's there's all this darkness, but lightness. It was this admixture of color, but color wasn't a definition of what was one was. It was a way to describe how beautiful they were. Yeah, yeah. A- well, so I've I've heard this, and like that sounds plausible to me. The only thing that I have to say is like we have enough DNA now that um, even though the original Indo-Aryans, it's highly likely that they were not, you know, they weren't like Nordic. You know, they weren't like they weren't Chris Hemsworth in chariots, okay? Like um, no. they were probably a diverse lot, but um, it is it is highly likely that 
just like the Turks, you know, the Turks and Afghans that, that showed up were physically distinct from the native Indians, that the Indo-Aryans were also physically distinct from the, the farmers of the Indus Valley uh, region in, in, in many ways, and definitely from the, um, from the populations of peninsular India, which were, there were still like large numbers of hunter-gatherers, right? And when you have people of different physical types coming together, traditionally people do, you know, they do make judgments based on that, right? So, I mean, we, we don't, unfortunately, we don't have written records um, that are as clear. We have like these, like, you know, oral histories, which are, which are actually like quite informative in some ways. But as you say, like, you need to like interpret them with grains of salt because um, like, if, if, like, if you read, if you read the Greek myths, you read the Greek myths, there's actually like a huge enrichment of people with like blonde and red hair for some reason among the Greek heroes. And this yeah. made people think like, oh, well, they must have been like Nordic Superman and they were mixed like later on. Yeah. We have the ancient DNA now. That's totally false. Uh, right. The ancient Greeks were just like the modern Greeks. In fact, they were less Nordic than the modern Greeks. The modern Greeks have Slavic ancestry um, that came during the Middle Ages. Anyway, um, so... So actually, we brought this... I mean, Omar and I were talking about this earlier. And one of the things that you know I didn't bring up at the time is sometimes the archaeology is, is at odds with the genetics, right? Like, for example, there was a recent, recent discovery, I think... Uh, Maybe a year ago, about about 2,300 BCE, there was already chariots in India, along with like swords and things that people would have thought had been "quote unquote" Aryan, but the time period didn't play into the Indo-European, what they would consider Indo-European, like uh, in, in, entering into India. So, is I mean, you're having a lot of dissonance between first the linguistics, the archaeology, and the genetics. Doesn't it require a much more multidisciplinary kind of approach to it than we currently are seeing? Yeah, I mean that's what David Reich's trying to do. They're trying to bring in a lot more archaeologists into the uh, into the mix, and everyone needs to understand each other's methods. And um, I, you know, the way I, I'm not I'm obviously not an archaeo person, but um, the way that I resolve a lot of this is that yeah. I think people make too tight of an association between physical um, artifacts and you know like and peoples like you know like when the chariot like the Sintashta seemed to have been the first that made widespread use of the chariot but the chariot went everywhere really fast um yeah, it, did. it was like one of those things where it's like easy to copy and produce once you have a few skilled individuals and like guns it's going to spread fast because everyone needs to have it yeah and my that don't don't we do the same thing with language and genetics don't we link the language to a genetic group well, I mean, traditionally people didn't do that. They've been actually doing it more recently because some of basically um, until we had ancient DNA, we actually thought that there wasn't that much movement in the past, right? Sure. Um, and then people actually dug things up and they were like, "Whoa, there was a lot of movement." So, like the people in Britain, like the people that built Stonehenge, um, they like contributed like ten percent of the ancestry to modern British people. Right, right. They were totally overwhelmed. Or like, you know, India is like extremely populous. One of the original reasons I was like initially skeptical uh, of the evidence that came out of the Reich lab before ancient DNA was yeah. um, there's just so many people that live there. Like, I mean, how could a small group of, of pastoralists from the steppe have had such a demographic impact, right? And then like the more and more data is coming in, I'm like, I think one of the ways that I explain it to myself is uh, so when Genghis Khan, um, when he wanted to conquer when he when he did conquer northern china he actually wanted to depopulate it and turn it into pasture land he was just going to starve everyone right um one of his advisors uh from the native peoples 
was explaining how you could actually tax them and that would make you even more rich. And he's like, okay, we're not going to kill everybody. But if you're if you're a pre-modern primitive society, um, if you think of it more as animal competition, then you can imagine scenarios where they just basically kill everybody because they think of it as like a zero-sum game where they have the resources or someone else has his resources. In, in a historical time, though, the Romans didn't slaughter everyone they conquered because that's wealth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But maybe like, that's maybe that's a new that's a new idea, you know. Maybe like these ancient like peoples didn't view conquered peoples as wealth, and so they just killed them all or killed a lot of them. You know, that's that's one of the hypotheses that I have. And you, when you kill them, like it's not like they're sending them to concentration camps. They didn't have that technology. But if you drive someone off the land, they will they will they will die of starvation. You know. So let me ask you a question: What's the sample size that we're looking at of the? Of like, for example, the ancient DNA. Are we getting like a hundred different people from you know diverse areas? It's a is it like a certain location? Do we know if it's, for example, the elite or not elite? I mean, are we do we know all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, definitely we know if it's uh, uh, one second. Um, am I, am I on mute? No, I'm not on mute. Sorry. Um, so uh, we definitely it's mostly it's disproportionately elite, but not exclusively elite. Um, it looks like in the pre-modern, in like really really prehistoric periods. Um, there's actually not that much difference between elite and non-elite like there were in later societies. And I think that's just lack of stratification. Um, sample sizes, it depends on where you go. In Central Eurasia, we have like 1,000 ancient, right? right. Um, in India, there's a lot less. Oh, there's a new paper that's coming out, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're really working hard on it. You know, But in, in the tropics, it's harder. But I can tell you in Southeast Asia, there are dozens and dozens of ancient samples now. So it's not just because it's hot. Like there's some political issues that I think people are sitting on that are causing issues. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be like a lot of data, a lot of data. And that's one reason why I don't stress too much about the arguments people are having because the data is coming and everyone will know and then we can figure it out, um, uh, you know, pretty easily um, uh, what the patterns are. Like once we have like enough data, it's going to be, there's already enough data that, you know, I, I'm willing to make, like, strong bets that, like, you know, the Indo-Aryans were intrusive around 1500 BC, okay? Like, that's just, it's, you can, you can create scenarios where that's not true, and that is, that, that, that is consistent with the data, but right. um, it, it, you start to get, like, more, less parsimonious explanations. Sometimes the less parsimonious explanation is actually true, though, right? So these are only probabilities. Right. Um, but the most parsimonious explanation now is, frankly, something <laughs> that is very early 20th century of, like, you know, guys in chariots or, like, you know, in, like, wagons or on horses coming in around 1500 B.C. and, like, expanding across the Indian, you know, subcontinent and stuff like that. Um, and that, that's just what, like, the data looks like. Uh there are other ways you can interpret it, but it's really difficult. Like 15 years ago, I wouldn't have actually said that. I would have said like, oh, well, the language is probably spread from Central Asia, but like maybe a few percent max of the ancestry yeah. from there. Now I'm saying like probably 10% or more, depending, which is like an order of magnitude. That's significant, right? Um, and there are parts of like, you know, Pakistan and Northwest that it's like a third of the ancestry. And then there's like other complexities. Like it turns out that like the Iranian, you know, people, farmers from Iran contribute like, you know, a huge amount as well. So there's like three populations that are mixing together. It's not just two, right? Right. And that's like the, was it Yamani population? That's from like 8,500 BC or something? Yeah, so the Yamnaya population um, was the precursor in the Volga. And the ones that contributed to the Indo-Aryans are the Andronovo-Santashta complex. Right. 
And that's the precursor. Right. And then the Indus Valley civilization, like the most probable hypothesis now is like, it probably is part of this broad range of agricultural societies that expanded from the Zagros Mountains like thousands, many thousands of years ago. And it's probably a synthesis between native Indian peoples that had been living in the peninsula um, back in the Pleistocene and these like um, goat farmers, like goat pastoralists um, are the big thing that probably arrived maybe through Blachistan, that area. And uh, yeah. you know, that mix had stabilized for like a couple of thousand years b- before the Indo-Aryans arrived. And then right. they added like a third mix on top of that. And so you see this weird pattern um, where um, as you go east, you see a pattern where Brahmins actually have more Indo-Aryan and less Iranian and more ancestral, um, ancient ancestral South Indian, right? So like a Brahmin from Bihar is simultaneously more indigenous and more Aryan than someone from Sindh, if that makes sense. Right. You know? No, I, I, I... I get that. I, I just tend to, I mean, I get the genetic data. I understand it. And I totally, I'm bored with it. I just to be very uh, cautious about any sort of linguistic um, layer that people put upon it. And be, just because I, I don't think linguistics is anywhere close to a, a, a scientific certainty that you can get to with any sort of genetic data or, or to, to that matter, hard science. Archaeological data has much more relevance to me than linguistic data. And I think like we tend to, we tend to put all these layers on top of each other and just assume the linguistic data goes with the genetic data. Yeah. I mean, sometimes there are clear cases where, you know, obviously we know this historically, but even in the archeological and genetic data where languages moved and, you know, we don't see like a linguistic signature and, uh, or a genetic signature. Right. So, I mean, like that's definitely the case. Um, I think it's more difficult to imagine a scenario where, I mean, you can imagine it, but I mean, we know for a fact that there was, it looks like there was a huge genetic perturbation um, in South Asia, like 4,000 years ago. That's the way I would say it, right? Um, Maybe that has nothing to do with the Indo-Aryans, you know? Yeah, that's my position. I don't think it has anything to do with it. I don't know. And so I'm just kind of agnostic about it. Yeah. Just because I think there's other data that, that makes me look at it in different ways because the ancient world and we're, I was talking to Omar about this is so complex. Like we're, we're building narratives on, to be honest, like bits of data here and there, like the, we don't have a concrete sense of everything, but we're trying to build a narrative. And just like any scientific method, you kind of have to, it's going to take a while before we get to a more solidified place. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, one way, you know, from a scientific perspective, one thing you could say is like, you can reject a lot of hypotheses, right? Yeah. So um, you can reject a lot of hypotheses and then like what's left over um, is, is, uh, is, um, is what you're going to have to go, um, what, what you have to go with, you know? Um, So, I mean, I look at archaeology actually as a way to, genetics as a way to like reject and then archaeology is going to help um sift things you know i i agree but hey i mean we've been talking for a long time and i think we could keep going for much much longer um i actually enjoyed i mean we didn't we didn't discuss much of hinduism and stuff but i I think the the historic stuff learning more about bangladesh or pakistan has been really fascinating to me because i didn't know a lot of this stuff and obviously you guys are way more informed and especially about bangladeshi culture it's you know razib i i i'm like you say you're not very knowledgeable about desi stuff i think you're <laughs> you're selling it i don't really i mean i don't know much about uh bangladesh outside of like either ancient world 
or kind of the the semi modern world. So um, yeah, I re I really conversation. Well, I mean, you know, um, I guess one thing I would I would say is like I don't have like that much firsthand experience, so I try to make it up in like you know talking to people over the internet and um, right. you know just reading stuff. One of the things I love about the podcast is like you know I love talking to people that have different life experiences because it's so easy to get stuck in the bubble, like in the rat race in the United States, like where, whatever your position in life is, it's easy to get stuck in the oh, bubble, yeah. you know? And by the way, we haven't even gotten into our politics because you're a little more conservative and I am liberal, but not like super left. Well, so that so, means you're, that means, uh, that means you're on the right now. <laughs> no, I guess so. I guess if I you're not DSA, you're, you're, we're ultimately, I basically feel like if you're not DSA, Ultimately, we're going to be on the same side at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, it's just it, it's fascinating to me that I can't even have a conversation with people about like the nature of, uh, you know, the difficulty of having transgendered people compete in sports or talk about race in a much more uh, detailed manner, or even the fact that you can criticize Islam in U.S. without being called an Islamophobe. I, I mean, it's just... And, and on top of it, just like the the super radical left that's just trying to say everything's a hegemony. I, it's kind of interesting to me that I might have very left positions, but I have been called kind of conservative mm -hmm. for for a lot of positions. And it's crazy because I am not I'm not even a classical liberal. Yeah. I'm a little more left. But I mean, the way the way I explain it to people, like people of your persuasion, is is the way I think about it is I look out there and I see see who's against me. And I sit who's for me. Yeah. I stand with the people who are for me. And also, if you're in the position where you have to actually explain, well, actually, I'm liberal. That's like saying, well, actually, yeah. I'm good looking. Trust me. You know? <laughs> I mean, if, if you're at the point of explaining to people, you've already been voted off the island. Whatever you yeah, think yeah. about yourself, yeah. right? And I think you're objectively, you can be liberal in like, say like, if you're, if you're you know, I think a lot of people in Silicon Valley and tech are, are, are 1999 liberals. 1999 yeah. liberals are, are like problematic as fuck. Right? That's yeah. the problem. Like someone like Ro Khanna, um, you know, he started out as a moderate liberal, as a Silicon Valley liberal. But look where he is now. Yeah. I haven't followed him. He's, he's, really far, he's, he's really far left now. You know? I mean, not as far left as Primala Japayal or whatever in the squad. But he's gone pretty uh -huh. far left. Um, I think he's yeah. he's back in Bernie. I think um, so. He, I think that's just because he's a Democratic politician, and that's what you have to do. But his origins are in like you know because as a South Asian American, you're a minority. You obviously are going to, and if you're not Christian, you're going to be attracted to the Democratic Party. Like that's the party that's tolerant and inclusive, yeah. right? And so obviously that's just a natural right. stuff. But if you're in tech, if you're a capitalist, if you're in business, uh, you're going to be a little uncomfortable with all this like you know expropriate you know property and and all this like socialism stuff but you know you got to pick a side at the end of the day and i think um you know i hopefully like we'll get less polarized but if we do get more polarized um you know i know what side i'm on you know you just got you got to pick <laughs> that's right i am uh i don't i don't know exactly what side i'm on i'm kind of just on my side which is whatever if, viewpoint if you if you have I, only uh, your side you have no side then I guess I have no side because I, I prefer to have like, because I, I tend to get into a lot of arguments with like the super liberals and the, the conservatives just because I, I do have some leaning towards socialist policies or ideas, but I am a capitalist at the same yeah. point. 
and I do believe in accountability and responsibility and things, but what's up? I mean, it, you know, just, we, we, we gotta, we gotta cut this off, but like, I will tell you, dude, like, this is what I, this is what I say to my center left or centrist yeah. friends right now, yeah. the far left is culturally hegemonic, even if it's not, you know, technically like they don't control capital, they control the propaganda machine of the media and the, the brain of the academy. And so the right is, is culturally weaker. The culturally weaker side is always going to be more pluralistic and tolerant of dissent because it needs to be. The, power, the side with, with yeah. the power is going to be less tolerant because it doesn't need to be tolerant. And so what I tell my like, moderately leftist friends is, oh, well, you know what? Like, we, we, like, I'm an atheist. Like, I have no problem with abortion, you know? I have, like, a lot of conservative, right. like, pundits who follow me on Twitter. They have no problem with me. I write for National Review, you know? It's, it's just right. not because, – because what are they going to do, like, expel all the heretics and, like, be nobody and nothing? They know that they have no chance right. against the cultural left unless they create a big tent. So we are a big tent. Now, at the end of the day, if we defeat the cultural left and we reverse it back to 1999, then we can have the same discussions that we always used to have with moderate liberals versus moderate conservatives, right? But until that day comes – uh, my plea is you need to stand with the right because the right is the side that's actually defending liberalism because that's the only chance we have. Ultimately, you know, when you give when you when you when everything is about power, that means the weak have no shot. The only shot the weak have is when you have truth and objectivity, and that's why the right is actually more about that right now because we're weak. I, I get that. Like I stand always with like free speech, freedom of religion, those classical problematic. values that are They're problematic. Yeah, but but they stand with the Constitution again. Right? Problematic. And as, Dead white male. And what's? I, I I guess I guess that's problematic if you want to consider ideas to be uh, kind of the the specific ownership of particular people or groups. It's I don't white know. supremacy. Freedom, uh, but freedom I, of speech is a white supremacist talking point, apparently. I, I, that's what I hear. That's what I hear. But I, I don't believe that. So that's not something I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand by, right? It's just we have to have a system where people are allowed to talk and engage with each other. And whatever their, their idiotic views, um, they got to be able to say it. You, you, can't, you can't shut people down. And that's, I think this is a fundamental problem we have in our society today. And that's got to be addressed. But whatever your political persuasion um, is at this point, it's, it's just freedom of speech is the most important thing. Hi, I just, uh, I had to step away for a while. I just came back. I saw you were guys on an interesting topic, uh, which most of it... <laughs> I, I was explaining to Mukunda how he's actually right wing because he supports the white supremacist view that freedom of speech is absolute. <laughs> I know in that way, I've also become white supremacist, I guess. Uh, but this is uh, unfortunate. And I really feel that more than maybe Rajiv does. Rajiv sort of identifies as a right winger. Uh, so it's not a big deal for him to say the leftists are not for free speech. Uh, but for me, who identifies as sort of left of center uh, and used to identify pretty much as Marxist a long time ago. Uh, but this is a sad development for me. I think that for a long time, people who were sort of left of center thought of themselves as being people in favor of, pro of free speech. And people who were, you know, who would allow this debate and this uh, argument to go on and not use force to force everyone to follow a monoculture. Uh, but unfortunately, something has shifted. And this is, uh, 
Yeah, I don't know what what else you discussed about this, but no, it we is. We just sad. started the conversation about this. I mean, but maybe we should have another podcast about this because it's a really interesting topic. And like you, Omar, I'm I am left of center, and I I do feel like in this day and age, the very the only people truly fighting for for uh, free speech tend to be people a little right of center like Jordan Peterson, but even like someone like Sam Harris is pretty left of center and he's con- considered, uh, you know, uh, almost right wing. Um, and, and I think the, Oh, he's considered pretty much Nazi yeah, now. Which is insane, but that's, that's. Which is insane. Yes. And I think like the fact that we can't have, and, and that's one of the things I talk about also in the pot in our podcast is we have to be able to have these conversations and delve into these topics that people don't find uh, easy because you don't make progress by talking about the same nonsense over and over again with each other, with the same people that like you, you got to talk with people that don't in- engage with your viewpoint. Um, and so I think, you know, we are getting close to your time. It was been like two hours. We should, we should set up something else another time and talk about. US yeah, we'll have to wrap it up. Uh, but we are all pro, pro, pro free that's speech, right. uh, whether that's right wing or left wing, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> that's right. And I hope it was a great conversation. It was a great conversation. Um, yeah, so um, yeah. <laughs> touched a lot of topics. Yeah, and it was good. I really enjoyed it. Um, and hopefully we can do this again. I mean, there's only a few of us brown guys doing these kind of podcasts, right? Like me, you, you guys. It's uh, all about Michelle quality, America, not quantity, like, bro. It's all about quality, not quantity. It's not about quality, it's not about <laughs> quantity, but it's about having a number of different viewpoints. Like yeah. we are just talking about, right? We all have different viewpoints. It's good to have a space where we can all talk about. It. Like I really loved the episode you guys had with Daisy guys talking about being Daisy. Oh, you're talking about you're talking about the one with um, with with uh, Amy and Ahmed. Yeah, that was fantastic. I really enjoyed it because it was like you don't get that kind of conversation, that deep level conversation amongst Daisies anymore. I really think a lot of these Daisies in this country are so they're so not tuned into their Daisiness from a larger perspective. They're just kind of like siloed off well i mean i think i think it's probably because they're american and america is is becoming in a way a culturally isolationist nation even if it doesn't think it is yeah i think you're right but i think you guys do a great service with this right you're really bringing these these topics and ideas that people should be discussing but are kind of like too too content with their lives yeah you got to get out of the rat race sometimes you got to get out of the rat race sometimes that's what we're trying to do here you know we got we got jobs we got lives we got kids um, and then, you know, but sometimes you need to just kind of like look around and stuff like that. You got kids, bro? No, man, I don't. Uh, maybe in a couple of years. I'm I, I'm turning 40 this year, so probably a couple of years from now, maybe. All right. We'll see. All right. Well, 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 good luck with that because your, your, your gotra needs, uh, your, your, your Y chromosome needs replicating, bro. Well, not just your Y. You're in- yeah. I'm cool with that. <laughs> I'm cool if it does or doesn't. Not my thing. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, it was great talking to you, man. All right. Yeah, for sure. Great talking to you guys. Thank you for the opportunity. Tune in next week for Brown Cast. <laughs>